guys, it's time for episode two of Consistent Calvinism Podcast. Um, if you haven't checked out episode one, I highly encourage you to do so. It's going to provide a very good foundation for what we're going to talk about today, although it's not necessary. I'm going to cover a few brief foundational points to start off. Um, but episode one was a nearly five-hour, um, fairly exhaustive refutation of free will as a concept, and I sought to show that, logically speaking, God cannot even give us free will to begin with. So if that statement and that claim intrigues you, please check out episode one, and you can you can find this Consistent Calvinism podcast on YouTube, on your favorite podcasting app, and you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for the Twitter. So the context of this particular episode is that I'm going to be responding to an episode of Soteriology 101, which is uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers, who is a provisionist, non-Calvinist, calls himself a provisionist rather than an Arminian, and we'll explore those differences later on but I want to allow people to define themselves properly. He's a provisionist, and he has on Eric Hernandez, who is a Molinist, um, and he, he he usually has other people on when he's talking about these philosophical matters, which is totally fine. At least he's just admitting, you know what, I don't dwell so much on these things, so let me have somebody on that, that specializes in that. Um, and so that's perfectly fine. The topic at hand is, Can God foreknow something that he has not himself determined? That is the title of Leighton Flowers' episode from last week. Can God foreknow something that he himself has not determined? And my answer to that question as a Calvinist is no, he cannot. The only things that God can know, logically speaking, are things that God determined to take place. Okay? And I'm going to justify that throughout this episode. Uh, the context of why Leighton Flowers made that episode is that James, Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, who is a prominent Calvinist, tweeted out something that every Calvinist who has ever walked the planet since the beginning of time has claimed. And it's a simple claim that says that the only consistent free will position is a position of open theism, which denies that God knows the future. The only consistent free will position is the position which denies that God knows the future. And I stand by that claim. And you should see by the end of this episode why, if you're going to be logically consistent with a free will position, you should deny that God knows the future. So what I'd like to do is just put a, define a couple very brief foundations here. The first thing is let's define free will. It's very strange how this is actually rarely done. It's always talked about. Free will is always talked about, but nobody actually, it happens, but most of the time nobody comes along and actually describes what free will is. In this episode, these two gentlemen, from what I remember, I'm jumping through part of it, but I don't think they ever once defined what they mean by free will. And in episode one, I made it very clear that when we're talking about free will in a theological discussion, your metaphysical relationship to God, when it comes to you making choices, the reference point for freedom needs to be God. This is the only reference point for freedom that matters, okay? Is God determining what you do, yes or no? If your answer is no, because you hold to this idea of free will, then what you are putting forth is a claim that you are free from God when you make choices. He is not determining them. So free will is freedom from God. If you reject that uh definition and say that that's somehow a misrepresentation of free will, then you have a very watered down version of free will, which actually is is not important in the, in the long run. Because if you're going to admit that God can determine what you do, then your reference point for freedom is not God. It's been moved somewhere else, probably to just the simple fact that you're doing what you want. And as I showed in episode one, you doing what you want works perfectly fine in a Calvinistic worldview as well. Okay. God is determining all things, not just what you will do, but also the fact that you'll want to do it. So doing what you want freely, quote unquote, in the sense of just acting upon your desires has nothing at all to do with the actual discussion of free will, freedom from God, which is what matters. So the next foundation I would like to lay are the three foundational verses that I consider most important on these topics, the most important verses in the entire Bible um, that I used in episode one and I will continue to use throughout my lifetime 
on the topic of God's metaphysical relationship to you, can you or can you not have free will, are Hebrews 1.3, Acts 17, and Colossians 1. Hebrews 1.3 says that God not only created the world and the universe, but that he always constantly upholds the universe by his power. It doesn't say always, but the verse is always true, right? So God upholds the universe by his power, and the verse is always true. Moment by moment by moment, God is exerting power and upholding the things that he created. And if you stop and think about it, this must be the case, because whatever he creates is going to be less than him, less than eternal, less, you know, less than self-powered, so it's going to be reliant upon him, and so he must provide the sustaining power by which things not just come into existence, but also are sustained in their existence. The second verse is Acts 17. It says, in God we live and move and have our being. Right? It's also mentioned in the context of creation. It says that God, God who created the world, blah, 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 and in God we live and move and have our being. So even us as creatures, living, making choices, moving, making choices, taking actions, and having our being in God. And the verse is always true, right? This is always true, that we live and move and have our being in God. And Colossians 1 says that in God all things consist. So, so all three verses are saying the exact same thing, that God not only created all things but continuously upholds them, and my point to point out here is that these provide the foundation for the Calvinistic worldview of God's absolute power over all things and absolute control over all things and our denial that you can even have free will to begin with. My first question for the free will position is how can free will be true in light of the verses I just quoted? How can you claim to be free from the God who upholds your existence at all times? How can you claim to be free from the very power upon which you depend for your existence? Right? And, and so this is the... this is. This is the other, the other question I would like to ask is, how, do you, how are you not stuck as a free will proponent promoting the idea of free will in, in the light of semi-deistic dualism in the sense that you actually believe that God can create self-sustained things? You believe that God can create you as a self-sustained, self-determined entity. How is that not committing some form, not the whole, not full deism, but some form of deism or dualism, that there's more than one ultimate power at work in the universe? I don't bring up these terms to, to maliciously label people. I bring them up to be descriptive of your claims. You are claiming aspects of, some, of, 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 de, of deism, that God can create self-sustained things. And as you're going to see throughout this episode, the entire premise upon which God can foreknow free will choices is the assumption that God can foreknow the future of things that he has nothing to do with. And if he has nothing to do with those things, then those things must be self-sustained. They must be self-powered. They must be self-caused and self-moved as the free will position often says in, in their own definition of what free will is. We're our own first mover. We create our choices out of nothing. On and on and on. You're, you're, how are you avoiding or not committing some form of deism or dualism when you make those, those claims? I also bring up these verses. Instead of just launching into the standard Calvinistic uh, proof texts, right? Oh, God works all things or God hardens hearts or, you know, these sorts of things. You have to have the right foundations in place. The three verses I quoted are foundational. They are not proof texts. You can't look at that and go, you know, you're reading your Calvinism into that. I mean, it's just plain. God upholds the universe moment by moment by moment at all times. There's no Calvinistic lens there. There is foundation. And I build the rest of my worldview and read other proof texts like God works all things in light of that foundation. Okay? So the problem is not who has a lens through which they read proof texts. The question is whose lens is right whose lens has a biblical foundation. And so whenever we start talking about this topic, you'll start thinking up the problem of evil and sin and this and that and God's relationship. I covered all that in episode one. I don't have time to do that here. Instead, I'm going to just go with these three verses and launch into the response of responding to their episode on can God know what he has not determined. 
So let's get started here. We're going to jump in where Leighton Flowers uh, briefly defines what open theism is, and we fully agree with this uh, definition here. Speak for themselves as regard to what they believe and why they believe it, but open theism, generally speaking, and very surface levelly, and very on a very surface level uh, statement, is ultimately the view that denies that God has exhausted divine foreknowledge of what creatures will determine to do in the future. So, in other words, you can't know something that hasn't yet been determined on a general view of open theism. So God doesn't yet know what creatures will choose to do in the future. He, he, he gains that knowledge. Right, because they don't yet exist to have determined what they would do, right? At the time that it happens, I guess, or he can predict a lot of things really well, but he doesn't have a, a sure fixed knowledge of the future free choices of creatures on open theism. Right, so that that is a a fairly proper definition of, of open theism. It just basically denies that God knows future free will choices of his creatures, and the reason they do that is they are hyper-committed to a true, true view of free will, which basically says that this idea of being able to do otherwise, this in the ultimate sense, you ultimately can do otherwise, is what is what open theism would say. It was what a true free will position would say, and so to preserve that, you would need to deny that God knows the future, because if God knows what you'll do tomorrow and you can't do other than what God knows you'll do, then you can't do otherwise, can you? Right? And this gets a little little complicated and intricate, but as you see this episode unfold, you're going to sort of be able to see by the end of it why you must commit. If you are going to hold to a, not a watered-down version of free will, which zooms into time and starts talking about a choice when the choice is being made, but if you're going to actually hold to free will, which says that you can actually do other than what, in this case, God knows you'll do, then he can't know what you're going to do, right? Now, as Leighton said, you can make he can make predictions, but predictions are just, you know, can, are predictions 100% or not? Well, in the open theist view, they're not 100%. They might be 99%, but there still must be the possibility for you to do otherwise if free will is to be true. And I think that um, while people like Leighton Flowers and Molinists and everybody else who hold the free will might disagree with that quote-unquote extreme definition, I think it's a logically consistent definition of free will that... Um, as you'll see, has no actual place in reality. Um, just quickly, I you know, in episode one, I talked very extensively, very extensively, about uh, determinism, us making choices in a finite existence, situations, determinative factors, uh, circumstances, you know, everything involved in you making choices extensively in episode one, and I don't have time to go back over that again here, but I basically showed why being able to do otherwise is strictly hypothetical. It's only hypothetical in the sense of you had the the hypothetical means to have done otherwise, but you would have only have done otherwise if you had, for example, wanted to, but given the specific circumstances, you you would not have wanted to. In other words, people like to say, well, if I could go back in time knowing what I know now, then I would have done otherwise. Well, that might be true, but you're admitting determinism when you try to go down that road because you're admitting that the the, the situation, the circumstances in the past would have had to have been different, a.k.a. you would have had to have, know, had to have known something you didn't know at the time in order to have done otherwise. And in the long, long story short, you are admitting determinism when you start talking about, you know, going back in time and, oh, if only I'd known. There's a difference between going back in time and rewinding time. To say that if you were to rewind time back to the exact same situation that you could have done otherwise is logically fallacious, right? Because in the ultimate sense... You could not have done otherwise. Um, if you want to say that you could have, then you completely disconnect your choices from what surrounds those choices, and you make um, a mess out of reality, so to speak. And uh, once again, coming back to the topic at hand, how could God know the future 
If he cannot base his knowledge on what you will do, on the things that surround and come before what you will do, then what is the basis for God's foreknowledge? There is none, logically speaking. You just basically have to say God's God and he can do it, which, unfortunately, um, these two guys, uh, Leighton Flowers and Eric Hernandez, are going to say quite a bit in this episode, as you'll see. But um, both sides, okay? Let's put open theism aside for a moment and talk about just a general free will view and God knowing the future and then Calvinism. Both sides are stuck with the ability to do otherwise as in the ultimate sense as being logically impossible, okay? Again, God knows what you're going to do tomorrow. You can't do other than what God knows you're going to do. You can't do otherwise, right? So both sides are stuck with ability to do otherwise as being stri strictly hypothetical. Would that be a fair assessment, Eric, of kind of what open theists are, virtually what open theists are saying? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I I've heard it. They also say that uh, the, the ones that, I, that, as I understand it, they would say it's, it's a logical impossibility for God to know... Um, future contingent actions because they, they bring up something what's called the grounding objection but basically um because there's nothing because the action hasn't happened yet god can't know it so they would argue that it's kind of like a, a squared circle kind of deal where you know well that's a logical impossibility god can't create that in the same way god cannot know things that haven't happened yet because that would be kind of like in the same uh, playing field of a squared circle it's a logical impossibility for god to know things that have not yet happened um and then and then some would argue that if he did it's because he causes it so kind of going along the lines of what you said as well Okay. All right. So he, he mentions the grounding objection, but he didn't really explain what the grounding objection is. So I'm going to do that. Um, the grounding objection is that since we're having a logical discussion, we're discussing, we're discussing the logical order of what is happening in the mind of God at, in eternity past as he plans creation out. So let's put mo uh, open theism aside for just a moment, and let's abandon the obviously ridiculous idea that God experiences time just as we do. Both sides of this issue free will or not, are going to agree and admit that they're, uh, that what is occurring in time, what is unfolding in time, is the outplay of what God has planned in eternity past. And as I discussed in episode one, whether that was reactively planned by God or actively planned by God, you know, we covered that late, we covered that in that episode, and, and I don't have time to go into that now. But obviously a free will side would say that God reactively planned it, the Calvinist side would say that God actively planned it. Nevertheless, back to the point, both sides admit that there must be a logical order in the mind of God as he plans creation out. So, since both sides agree on that, it needs to be recognized that God's foreknowledge must be grounded, this is where the grounding objection comes in, God's foreknowledge must be grounded in something that comes before it. You cannot start off in the logical order, you cannot start God's foreknowledge off at the point where people are making choices and just ignore how those people came into existence in the first place to be making those choices, right? Logically prior to God knowing anything about you, he has to first foreknow that you will exist. This is very simple and very basic, right? God can't know anything about you unless he first foreknows that you will exist. So the question that needs to be asked is, who is it that's responsible for your existence? And for any Christian, the answer is obvious. It's God, it's not you, right? So God is actually foreknowing that you will exist. He is foreknowing the results of his own action, he is not foreknowing the results of something he has nothing to do with. And this is one of, this is probably the most critical point that could be made throughout this entire episode, and I will repeat it over and over and over again. God's foreknowledge is not based upon things he has nothing to do with. Okay? So you cannot ignore, and this is because of the verses I just read. Hebrews 1.3, he didn't just create everything, he upholds everything by his power. Acts 17, in God we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1, in God, God created all things, and in God all things consist. These verses are always true, and therefore the idea that something can either exist or be occurring apart from the power of God that God has nothing to do with is logically impossible. 
So, you cannot ignore God's act to create you when you're talking about God foreknowing your choices. God's foreknowledge must logically include his own action to create you in the logical order. So, it could be said, as a simple statement, that God knows that by creating you, you will do X, Y, and Z. But notice how I haven't left out the fact that God is creating you, and therefore your his knowledge of you doing X, Y, and Z is grounded upon, and in fact only exists in his mind because he has first considered creating you. God knows that by creating you, you will do X, Y, and Z. Okay? So, if he does not first consider creating you, his knowledge of you doing X, Y, and Z would not even exist in his mind in the first place. So you cannot talk about God for knowing the future choices of free creatures, right, that fancy phrase, you cannot talk about God for knowing the future choices of free creatures and disconnect your choices from God's action to create you. Otherwise, the statement itself that I said, God knowing that by creating you, that statement becomes completely irrelevant, right? God is not, not, God is not now knowing by creating you X, Y, and Z. He's just knowing X, Y, and Z out of, out of nowhere, out of the blue. And it's completely illogical. The true reality is that God foreknows everything he knows about you in your future because he first foreknow that he would create you. Now, since before creation exists, that's the discussion we're having. Both sides are, are having this discussion. Since before creation exists, the only thing that exists is God, right? And you're starting with only God then God can only be foreknowing the results of his own actions. It doesn't matter how far into the future he looks. Everything that he's going to be considered, considering is going to be the results of his considering his own actions to create or sustain. Right. So it makes no logical sense to say that he is foreknowing things he has nothing to do with when everything that exists is created by him and everything that happens or ever will happen in creation is sustained by him. Okay. There is no such thing as something occurring that God has nothing to do with. So people like to say one of the most ridiculous things I, I've ever heard in my theological studies and discussions and, and, all, and all these sorts of things. People just like to say, well, just because God foreknows something will happen does not mean that he caused it. But this would only be true once again if there were things existing or occurring that God had nothing to do with, right? That, since, again, the only things that exist are things that God's created and sustained, the idea that God could be foreknowing things he had nothing to do with could only be true if there were, I say this sarcastically, but if there were other gods out there creating their own things that God then looks over at and begins to know things about, right? But that would that would be God learning, that would be God taking a knowledge from outside of himself. Nobody believes that, obviously. And so this is why when people try to say, well, I can look over at things that I had nothing to do with, and know or foreknow things about them, things that I had nothing to do with, so if I can do that, why can't God? And the reason you can do that is precisely because you're not God. It's precisely because of the verses, Hebrews 1.3 and Acts 17, that I just read. You can look over at things you had nothing to do with and know and foreknow things that you had nothing to do with precisely because you are not God. You can do that precisely because there are things that you did not create and sustain that are occurring around you. There's trillions of things occurring around you that you did not create, you did not sustain, and therefore you can know and foreknow things about them because you're not God. But notice something important. You are learning that knowledge, right? It is, you are taking in the knowledge from outside of yourself because it's things that you had nothing to do with. So this is why the idea of free will is such a dangerous, logical view when it begins to say things like, we create our choices out of nothing, or we are our own first mover. It begins to present a worldview where there are, in fact, things that are occurring or creating, created by something or someone, in this case you, other than God, right? And it presents the idea that there are things happening which are 
sustained by a power or caused by a power other than God. And what I want to get across to people is that the Bible knows nothing of this. The three verses that I read, Hebrews 1, 3, Acts 17, and Colossians 1, completely exclude the, <coughs> excuse me, the idea that there are the semi-deistic, dualistic idea that there are other ultimate powers at work in the universe. So the grounding objection actually applies to us logically as well. So as if we just move the, the analogy away from us for knowing things that we have nothing to do with, which is obviously only possible because we're not God, and we actually consider that if we take a particular action, now our foreknowledge is grounded in our own action as well, right? Just as soon as you start basing something you foreknow on your own actions, the grounding objection is logically applicable to us as well. Because the grounding objection is not just this thing that's only applicable to God. The grounding objection is as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is as true as any other logical fact. So by taking an action, you, you ensure that what will result from taking that action will come to pass. So if you foreknow that by doing something, X, Y, and Z will happen, then by taking that action, you also ensure to determine what you know will result from taking the action will come to pass. And again, this is a logical fact that you cannot avoid. We could break this down very simply. Just pick up any object. I have a water bottle right here. If I foreknow, and for the sake of this example, let's say that the only things that exist are me, the water bottle, and the ground. If I foreknow that by dropping this water bottle, it's going to hit the ground. Well, now I know I foreknow the future state of this water bottle. And let's pretend I know it 100%. Again, the only things that exist are, are me, the water bottle, and the ground. There's nothing else that could cause this water bottle to hit the ground. It's just me. I foreknow that by dropping the water bottle, it will it will hit the ground. My knowledge of the future state of that water bottle only exists in my mind because I have first considered my own action. If I had not first considered that I would drop this water bottle, my knowledge of the future state of that water bottle being on the ground would not even exist in my mind in the first place. So I spent all that time explaining the grounding objection. It's a simple concept to start with, but as you, it takes a little bit to expound on it to get get, get through people's minds. And so he, he mentions the grounding objection, but interestingly enough, never actually explains it. He just, he mentions it and then concludes that, well, they're just saying that God can't do illogical things, which is true, but, but he doesn't actually explain what the grounding objection is. I, I think one of the reasons might be is that the grounding objection is a direct refutation, as you'll see in a little bit here, to the Molinist position, okay? Uh, the Molinist position is the idea of middle knowledge, which states that God can foreknow what free creatures will do given certain circumstances. But once again, how can you logically ignore, ignore that how those free creatures came into existence and came to be in those circumstances in the first place, right? This, this, this knowledge must come logically prior to knowing what the creatures will do. So middle knowledge starts off God's knowledge logically. It starts it off with the people making choices in circumstances. But it ignores how people came into existence, and it ignores how people came into being in those circumstances, which, once again, is the result of God's actions, not their actions, right? So, we can't skip over and ignore what God's foreknowledge is grounded upon, since anything and everything that comes to pass is the result of his own actions. And so, along these same lines, I want to reiterate something I hammered home very um, frequently in episode one, and that is that there's a major false assumption that is coming along when Calvinists like myself start talking about God exerting power over things and being in control of things. There is this false assumption that, well, if God just wasn't doing that, if God would just get off his power trip, take a chill pill, and just let things be, right? Let things happen. 
and stop exerting power and stop controlling things meticulously, if he would just let Leighton Flowers be and let Eric Hernandez be, then then they could have this thing called free will and they could be doing their own thing and things would just be happening differently, right? But Calvinists present this God that must come along and, and exert power and control things. The fact of the matter is, if Hebrews 1.3 is true, if the point I'm hammering home is true, that nothing can come to pass that is not the result of God's own action of exerting power, whether it's coming into existence or continuing in existence, in terms of moment-by-moment occurrence, all of that is the result of God's power. If Hebrews 1.3 is true, then the fact of the matter is that if God was not exerting power, nothing would be happening in the first place, and nothing could be happening in the first place if God were not exerting power. And this exposes a major false assumption about this idea that, well, if God would just stop exerting power and stop trying to control things, things would be happening differently. No, if God stopped exerting power, you would cease to exist. God stopped exerting power, nothing would be happening or could be happening. And when you consider this critical point, you will begin to see how your worldview can be very radically shaken by the fact that God is the one whose power is behind all things. He is the ultimate power behind everything that comes to pass. And so this is the basis upon which my entire claim in episode one, that it is impossible for God to give you free will in the first place, is based, right? It is impossible for God to metaphysically disconnect himself from you, because if he stops exerting power over you and your existence, you cease to exist. And we covered this extensively in episode one. Once again, God's God's control and power over you is not this switch that can be flipped on and off. It's not like it's not like, well, I think I'll control Leighton right now so that I can get something that I want done, but then in the meantime, he can be off off on his own with his free will, right? It is the necessary relationship of something that is finite to the God who created it and, and, and to which that finite thing is dependent, right? Continued existence. And it can't be any other way, logically speaking, right? The only other way would be semi-deistic dualism. The only other way to understand God's relationship to the world is if you're going to say he can disconnect himself from you, then you are teaching semi-deistic dualism. I don't say that term as this malicious negative term to try to just label people, you know, maliciously. I'm saying that to have a specific conceptual um, connotation. If you believe that there are things occurring in this universe by a power other than God's, aka you with your free will, then semi-deistic dualism is unavoidable, right? So back to the point. Um, the conclusion then, therefore, is that if each moment of time that comes to pass must first be brought to pass by God's exerting of power, then in the logical order of the mind of God, back to the foreknowledge of God, God can only foreknow a future state of his universe by first foreknowing the way in which he will exert power over that universe. This once again comes back to the grounding objection, right? God has to, if, if, if a moment of time can only come to pass because God is going to exert power so that it can come to pass, then... God can only foreknow a future state by first foreknowing the way in which he will exert power over that future state. God can only know, foreknow a future state of his universe because he first foreknows the way in which he himself will bring it about. And so this is a perfectly logical refutation to any claim that God can be foreknowing things that he once again has nothing to do with. If Hebrews 1.3 is true, there is never anything that has come to pass that God had nothing to do with. God has everything to do with everything that is anything that has ever come to pass because he is the creator and sustainer of it all. So this is the ultimate proof behind the Calvinist's claim that God foreknows the future because he determined it. Logically speaking, if anything that ever comes to pass must first be brought to pass by him, then God is only once again foreknowing the future of his own actions. He is not foreknowing the future of the actions of another power he has nothing to do with. 
So a free will position, again, must come along and somehow say that in this logical order, right, God foreknowing the results of his own actions, or in the state, in the sense of th something coming to pass, must first be brought to pass by his sustaining power, free will has to come along and say that somehow, magically and mysteriously, we can reverse that logical order and God can foreknow a state of his universe before he considers the way in which he will exert power in upholding it. Free will must reverse the logical order and say that God first foreknows what you will do and then foreknows that he will uphold your existence so that you can do it, right? And, and, and that's backwards. It's, it's logically po impossible given the fact that Hebrews 1.3, Acts 17, and Colossians 1 are true. The po this point is absolutely critical to refuting the free will position and on the topic at hand, the idea that God can foreknow things he has nothing to do with or did not determine. And, and this goes for open theism, Molinism, general free will, general, the general foreknowledge position. And you're going to see very soon in this episode as we, this, these, the reason I'm taking so much time right now is to lay these foundations out so that as these guys start talking, you can, it, you can see it um, stick out, so to speak. And what's kind of funny is we, both, of, both our sides in this, in this um, particular episode, we're going to be bringing up open theism almost as this side issue that's sort of a joke to everybody, right? There's, it's just sort of really a ridiculous view. But I just want to briefly mention open theism again, the idea that God does not know the future, the idea that God is experiencing time as we do, that these three foundational verses, before we finally move on to more of what they're saying, these three foundational verses are the most brutal refutation of open theism that I can think of. Because once again, if Hebrews 1-3 are true, if each moment of time that comes to pass must be brought to pass by God's exerting of power, how could God not know the future? How could God not know the future moment that he himself is going to uphold and exert power over? Right? He, if nothing can come to pass apart from God's power... How can he not know the way in which he's going to exert his power at the next moment? So it is a total annihilation of the open theist position, and I would love to hear how they would even pretend to begin to attempt to answer this problem, right? Which claims, you know, their view claims that we, God experiences time as we do, and he doesn't know the future. The open theist view must commit massively to a deistic worldview, a deistic worldview where God throws things into existence, <coughs> excuse me, metaphysically lets go of them, lets them run on its own, right? And he's just standing by as a spectator watching things happen, right? Completely metaphysically disconnected. And this worldview, once again, has no place whatsoever in Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Acts 17. There is not a single verse in the Bible that teaches that anything, including you, is a self-sustained, self-powered entity that God can just sit there and watch, metaphysically disconnect himself from, right? Um, and I know there's a lot of nuance to these these issues, and I'm not pretending that there's not, and I'm not trying to misrepresent my friends who are open theists, just like I don't want to misrepresent my friends who are Calvinist. Uh, and, and ironically enough, as William Lane Craig argues, uh, open theists and Calvinists tend to be strange bedfellows on this in this regard, because both of them seem to deny that God has the ability to know the future libertarianly free choices of creatures. Um, and that's an interesting claim, given that it seems to, ironically, as, as I argue, uh, seems to deny God's either God's omniscience or his omnipotence. So, first of all, it's not really ironic when two positions who disagree on a lot of things come to an agreement on a logical fact, right? So, are we strange bedfellows because we believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or that the sky is blue? Uh, I don't think so, right? That's just how, that's a fact of reality. And so to say that, well, Calvinists and open theists are strange bedfellows because they don't believe that free will choices can actually be known, logically speaking or foreknown, 
that's we're just making a logical statement, a logical fact. If future free will choices cannot logically be foreknown, right? And so we're just on opposite sides of the consistency spectrum, right? On the the open theist side, they want to hold on to the unbiblical concept of free will so much so that they deny the obvious biblical reality that God knows the future. So they hold on to the unbiblical and sacrifice the biblical. But the Calvinists on the opposite side of the consistency spectrum, we don't want to abandon the biblical. We admit and and recognize and, and believe that God knows the future exhaustively, but as a result, we therefore deny the unbiblical, the free will view. We deny the unbiblical view of free will. So it's just true that both sides are being logically consistent about the relationship of free will and foreknowledge. Um, it's just that the open theist side is sacrificing biblical truth at the same time, while, whereas Calvinists are maintaining it. And, you know, I'll say very quickly here that free will is, as a concept, conceptually taught nowhere in the Bible. It is always assumed into everything that is being read, right? When you ask people to prove free will from the Bible, they're going to be quoting a lot of verses where people are doing things. They're choosing or not choosing, willing or unwilling, you know, rejecting or accepting. They're just describing the actions of people. But quoting verses where people are doing things does not answer whether or not those things are being caused by God or caused by the person apart from God, right? We have to go to the Bible to answer those foundational questions, right? And and the problem is that there there's multiple verses that establish God's metaphysical relationship to what he's created. I mentioned three of them already, right? Hebrews 1.3, God upholds the universe by his power. So Calvinism has that going for itself in the sense that our foundation our assumption by which we read all those verses through where people are doing stuff and understand that, yes, people are making choices, yes, people are taking actions, that's all true, but we understand that in light of the foundation that God is the causative, sustaining power behind it all, metaphysically, because of Hebrews 1.3. So that's our foundation. The problem with the free will side is that there are zero verses supporting the idea that man is self-sustained, self-determined, self-powered, their own first mover, any of that. That must all be assumed into the verses that are being read out of the Bible. And I challenge the free will side to justify their foundation of free will from the Bible. I've got the verses that say that everything that exists and continues to exist does so by God's power. I want you to show me a single verse that says that anything that exists or continues to exist does so by a power other than God's. Problem is you won't be able to find that verse. Right? So we both we both approach the Bible where people are doing stuff and we have a particular perspective and lens in place. The problem is not the lenses. Both sides have lenses. The problem is which lens is right. Which lens is based upon scripture, right? Which lens has foundational verses to support it, right? You have to go to the verses of the Bible that actually lay foundations that justify the lenses through which you read all those other verses about people doing stuff. I've got at least three verses that I've brought up so far. Where are your verses that support the idea that there are things that are self-sustained, self-powered, um, and 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 that are separate and apart from God's sustaining power. These verses do not exist. Uh, in that he doesn't really know all things, as the open theist might claim, uh, versus he may not be able to have the power to know the future libertarianly free choices of creatures, as the Calvinists would ultimately have to claim. And so what he's basically trying to say here is that Calvinism limits the power of God, because we're basically saying that God can't do something. God can't know future free will choices so we're saying that God can't do something because he's not quote-unquote powerful enough. Now, whether he intends it to be or not, this is a misrepresentation of the Calvinist claim, okay? The way you word that is that God doesn't have the power to know it 
right? As if the thing can be known in the first place, right? It's not about whether or not God's powerful enough. The ultimate point here is that it's whether or not it's possible in the first place, logically speaking. So when we start talking about things that God can and can't do, we're going to quote unquote limit God. There are positive limitations of God and there are negative limitations. A negative limitation would be that since God's not powerful enough, he can't do something. That would be limiting God in a negative sense, right? And nobody is going to do that, right? Nobody's going to negatively limit God. But that is not the category of limitation that I am talking about uh, on this particular topic of God knowing future free will choices. We are claiming a positive limitation. So a positive limitation is something that God can't do precisely because he is God. And there's a very long list of things that God can't do. God can't create another God like himself. God can't cause himself to cease to exist. God can't sin. I mean, to, to, to summarize it all, God cannot do illogical things, right? And it's not limiting God to say that. It is actually upholding God for who and what he is by saying that God cannot do those things. So this is what Calvinists are saying. We're saying that it is, is logically impossible for God to know future free will choices. It's not that future free will choices can logically be known and then we're denying that God can know them. That would be limiting God and his power. That would be saying, hey, look over there. There's something that does exist. There's something that can be known, and I'm going to say that God can't know it. That's not what's going on here. What we're saying is future free will choices, knowledge of those choices, cannot exist. It is impossible to know them in the first place, right? And, and so it is, it is not a, a, a negative limitation of God. It's a positive one. Right, so I, I reject this idea that Calvinists are limiting the power of God by saying he can't do something. There's plenty of things that God can't do. Both sides would agree that God can't do certain things. And the question is, is foreknowing free will choices a logical possibility or not? Okay? And what's funny is I'm spending a lot of time here justifying my claim that God can't logically know future free will choices. But the other side just throws it out there without justification at all. Right? You'll listen to this entire episode I'm reviewing here. Not once did they justify their claim that free will choices can be foreknown. They just say, well, God's God and he can do it, right? So they're claiming something without justification. I'm claiming something with justification. And I hope that that distinction um, that, that, that can be seen by, by people who are listening, that there's a major difference between the two sides here, that one side has logical justification, the other does not. Um, it's a baseless claim coming from the free will side. Your claim is that God can, in fact, know future free will choices. You say God's God, he could do it. It's a mystery you know, so on and so forth, but you offer zero justification for that claim. And this is one of the major problems that free will has on a constant basis, constantly, that they are making baseless, unjustified claims, and then basically criticizing people who come along and question those claims, right? So, you know, do not fall for this misrepresentation that, well, Calvinists are saying God is not big enough or powerful enough to do X, Y, and Z. There's plenty of things that God can't do, and it has nothing to do with his power and everything to do with logical possibility. Surely, are you saying, let me put it this way, let me ask you the question. If, if God doesn't have exhaustive knowledge of all things, then he must be learning as he goes along, or he must be gaining knowledge as he's going along. Um, and and that, that seems to be maybe what the uh, open theist is concluding, and what James White is saying is, well, the only way you can be a true, good, non-consistent non-Calvinist is to be like the open theist and just think that God's gaining knowledge as the world goes along. Now, the first point is that if open theism were true, then God would be learning. Okay, that's unavoidable. If, if he doesn't know what you'll do, and he's gaining that knowledge as you do it, if he's experiencing time as we do, then he would be learning if open theism were true. But I want to put open theism aside again and just talk about the majority view, 
a free will view, which says that even in the, the logical order of the mind of God, you don't exist yet. Um, God is somehow knowing what you will do. There's only two ways that knowledge can be had, logically speaking. Either you can determine what you know from within yourself, or you can learn what you know from outside yourself. There is no third option. And when it comes to God, I think all Christians are going to admit that God is not learning anything, right? Uh, he, know, he knew everything before, about creation before he created it. So the idea that before creation existed, only God existed, he can't be learning anything. Everything that he knows about creation, logically speaking, must be determined from within himself. And to be honest, that should be the end of the debate. The debate should be over on that basis. That you either know what you know because you determined it, or you know what you know because you learned it. Since God's not learning it, he must be determining it, and therefore the debate's over. God knows everything he knows about creation because he determined it all as the creator. When you And I already covered this in the grounding objection. When you start with only God, then anything that he knows is going to be the results of his actions, his creation, his sustainment, moment by moment, so on and so forth. And this is why you either have God knowing what he knows because he determined it from within himself, or you have God knowing what he knows because he learned it from something that did something outside of himself. And um, free will, logically speaking, if you think about it, is a view which says that God, there are aspects of God's knowledge which are in fact determined by you and not by him. And therefore, it makes no logical sense to say that you're existing only in the mind of God uh, prior to creation, and yet you're not and yet you're still somehow also determining his thoughts, right? This is just, once again, a, a very logically inconsistent view. And as you're going to see as this episode unfolds, they're basically going to try to justify that by just saying, well, God's God and he can do it. <clears throat> but they don't realize, or God's God and he just knows it because he's God. He knows it by nature. He knows it inherently. They'll use that word. And it's like, yeah, that's my position. My position is the one that starts with God, says he knows all things inherently because he determined them from within himself when only he existed. I'm the one that gets to say God knows it inherently and justify it. You're the one that has the trouble of justifying a view where he's, you don't like the word learning, but he's, aspects of his knowledge are determined and made up by things from that he's not determining, that are from outside of himself, and you have a very steep hill to climb, logically speaking. Calvinists often like to talk about God as the divine author. And we give the author example, uh, when you're going to author a story, every aspect of that story is going to be thought up by you. You're starting with you, and you plan and purpose and determine everything about the story, including characters, including what they do, why they do what they do, all the way down the line. You're the one that has a purpose in it all. And it doesn't make any logical sense for you to be considering what your characters will do apart from your plans to make them, and your reasons for making them, and why they will do what they do. You're the one, as the author, who plans that and determines that. And so, as far as this idea of determining or learning, again, there's no third option. If you can think up a third option, please let me know, but there is no third option, logically speaking. Either God knows what he knows because he determined it from within himself, or he knows what he knows because he learned it from outside himself. And um, one of the best verses of, of in the Bible that completely demonstrates the idea that God is the divine author if you think that that is somehow an unbiblical um, comparison and analogy, my favorite verse in the entire Bible on this particular topic is Psalm 139.16, right? Psalm 139.16 says that your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none. How can you possibly have a more word-for-word -word description of God as the divine author than to say that in his book even though that's poetic, in his book, that means his knowledge, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for you. So the question to ask is, who wrote the book, and who formed the days? 
Obviously, God the Creator wrote his own book, right? And God the Creator forms the days of his characters and writes them in his book. That's what divine authors do. That's what any author does. And for you to try to fit free will into this, you're going to have to say that you wrote your own book, and then God read it and learned it later on, and you formed your own days, right? You formed your own days, and God puts it in his book, but you formed the days. This is not what the verse says. The verse says, in God's book, were written, who, who wrote it? God had to have written it. Every one of them, not just some of them, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Who formed my days for me? Hmm. I think it's the creator, right? And so this idea of God being the divine author is laid out almost word for word conceptually in the Bible in Psalm 139.16. How would you push back on that? <clears throat> yeah, well, well, a few things. Um, first, even to the question he asked in the response, he said, does God know the end from the beginning, yes or no? I think what that really should be is two questions because there's a hidden assumption behind that question. The, two, the first question could be what he asked, does God know the end from the beginning, yes or no? I would say yes. But the second question implicit in his Calvinistic view in that question should be a separate question. Has God causally determined the end from the beginning, yes or no? So to the first question, yes, he knows the end from the beginning. Has God causally determined the end from the beginning? That I would answer that no. So in other words, to answer yes or no to this doesn't get what he wants to get unless you assume that the only way God can know the end from the beginning is if he causes it. So his his issue here is the hidden assumption that unless God causes all things, then God cannot know the things in which he does not cause or what they would say decree. So he says that we have a hidden assumption here. And I just have a simple question. Can you honestly say that after everything I've laid out, right, that I've laid out to justify my claim that God cannot know what he has not determined, logically speaking, that I'm just assuming that? Now, the person he's responding to might have been, quote-unquote, assuming it, because, as I've noticed over the years, that, that there are assumptions that are made that are not justified. But I believe that there are perfectly logical justifications for particular claims on the Calvinist side, and that is my goal, is to lay these, these not just claim things, but actually justify them. But... Can you seriously say that my I'm just assuming that God can't know future free will choices? I think I've been proving it, right? I, I don't merely assume it, I prove it. And, and once again, if everything that exists or continues to exist does so by the power of God, then the only things that God can foreknow are things that he causes. It's, it's plain and simple, right? And to, to get around that simple idea, you have to hold to a view which says that there are things that exist or that happen, that are by a power other than God's. And that is semi-deistic dualism. The Bible knows nothing of it. And free will must commit to that viewpoint, whether it wants to admit it or not. Okay? There's only two... The, the, if you're going to deny semi-deistic dualism, the only thing left is the view I've been putting forth. The view of Hebrews 1.3, that everything that exists and continues to exist does so by the power of God, and that there is nothing that is occurring apart from the power of God. Right? So... It's funny that that again he's accusing my he, he's accusing my side of making the assumption without justification although I think he's really referring to this particular person but if he is accusing Calvinism as a as a as a position of of making the assumption without justification then I absolutely reject that right I have been justifying my claim all the way down the line here and I would flip it around and say that it is his side his side merely assumes that, number one, there can be things happening in this universe apart from the causative power of God. That's assumption number one. There can be things going on that God has nothing to do with. And number two, that since there are things, since, since we falsely assume, number one, that there are things that are going on that God has nothing to do with, 
that therefore God can know things that he has nothing to do with, right? Both of those things are his hidden assumptions that he does not even once in this episode attempt to justify. Um, what's puzzling here is uh, quite a few things. <clears throat> um, like you said, it, 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 it's going to have to uh, lose one of the uh, omni attributes. Uh, I know Tim Stratton has an omni argument against uh, a Calvinism that he uses and basically argues that you're going to have to give up one of these omni attributes if you're going to hold to a Calvinistic view. So Now, I'm, I'm very glad that he brought up the omni attributes, and I, I really find it laughable that he's going to say that the Calvinist side must give up one of the omni attributes. Um, in episode one, I laid out, and I'm going to do, I'm, I'm just going to do it again here. I laid out the, the, my explanation of why the Calvinistic view is the only view that actually gives proper justification to the omni-attributes in the first place. My view not only does not give any of them up, my view is the only view that can give an account for them in the first place. Okay, so I'm very glad he brought up the idea of the omni-attributes, and I absolutely reject the idea that I need to give one of them up. And, and so let's just start with omnipresence, for example. Omnipresence. God is all places at all times. If you understand the omni-attributes of God in light of the three verses that I brought up, that God upholds the universe by his power at all moments, that in God you live and move and have your being at all moments, and that in God all things consist at all moments, then all the omni-attributes make perfect sense. And they're not mystical or magical um, in the sense of, well, we just don't, God's just God, and we just don't really have to explain it. The Bible explains it, okay? So omnipresence. If God has created all things and is sustaining all things, if everything that exists is reliant upon his power for continued existence, then of course God is omnipresent. He must be omnipresent. He must be present with the things he is upholding, okay? So omnipresence turns from something in a little, a little spooky, like, ooh, wow, God's everywhere, into an absolute logical necessity, God, by nature of being creator, creating something that is fully reliant upon himself, something is finite, inferior to him, reliant upon him, he must be omnipresent. He must be present with everything he's created, because Hebrews 1.3 says he, up, he upholds it all. So Hebrews 1.3 explains and justifies the omnipresence of God. Right? Let's take the omnipotence of God now. God's being all-powerful. Again, if everything that comes into existence comes into existence by God's power, and everything that continues to exist and occur exists and occurs by God's sustaining causative power, then God, by definition, is all-powerful because it is his power behind it all, right? And it's very ironic that a view which would accuse me of limiting God's power is a very view which presents the idea that there are things that are happening apart from God's power. So how can you have a view where there are other self-sustained things out there, other powers in the universe out there doing things apart from God's power, and still maintain that God is all-powerful? The contradiction is on your side. The limitation of God's power is on your side, not on my side. And thirdly, the omniscience, which is the topic at hand, God knowing all things. If God is continuously upholding all things, he must know all things, past, present, and future. God knows everything in the past because he was, he was there. He's, he's, he, he, he upheld it. He, he knows all things in the present. He's upholding it. And he knows all things in the future because he knows how he will uphold it. Right? So as you can see, when you take the omni attributes in light of the three verses that I've quoted, they make perfect sense. And my side is the only side that actually gives a justification for those particular attributes, right? So how are you going to sit there and accuse my position of denying one of the attributes when it's my position of God's creative power and sustaining power, which gives meaning and, and justification to those attributes in the first place? <clears throat> when we... Uh, when, when we're looking at, at this, 
if God cannot know the actions of things from free creatures that he doesn't cause, then I would question whether or not God is, uh, let's say, omniscient, because why can't he know that? So let, let's first define... Again, I've given all the reasons why he can't know that, okay? And it, again, it has nothing at all to do with denying his omniscience. It has nothing at all to do with denying his power, right? Just because we disagree on what God can know does not mean that we are denying that he knows all things that can be known. Omniscience. Omniscience is defined as God knows all true propositions and does not believe any false ones. Now, a proposition is just the content of a sentence. So if I say snow is white, or if I say it in Spanish, nieve es blanco, they're both the same proposition in that they both have the same content, but they're different words, different languages, but the content's the same. God knows the truth uh, value or the falsity of every proposition. So if something's true, God knows it. So I'll put it like this. Um, Eric ate pizza yesterday. That's true or false. It's a proposition that's true or false. God's going to know whether or not it's true or false. Uh, Eric is going to eat pizza today. That is true or false. God knows it. And then there are future tense propositions like Eric will eat pizza tomorrow. That is true or false and God would know it. So if yep. the definition of omniscience is that God knows the truth or falsity of every proposition, that would include future tense propositions. Absolutely correct. Everything he said I agree with, and nothing he said uh, refutes what I've been saying at all. Um, he's just making the simple statement that God knows all things. It's a very long, fancy way of saying it. But again, nothing he just said denies what I've said. The only difference is that what God, know, God knows all things, but is what he knows, did God determine what he knows, right? Or did you? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really it. That's the difference. Did God, does, does God know everything he knows because he determined it? Or does God know most of what he knows because he determined it, but some of what he knows because you determined it? That's, that's the difference here. Now, that being said, I would say that a, a necessary attribute of God is that he is inherently omniscient. Okay, he's inherently omniscient, but you're just restating what you just said. God knows all things, yes, and he inherently knows all things, yes. Everybody agrees on that, right? God knows all things. But he, what he's doing here is he's saying this in a very fancy way, and, and he's setting up, unfortunately, it is his ability to say that, well, God just knows all things because he's God. He knows all things by nature, and we don't need to explain it or justify how he knows it, right? Which is what he's about to do which means he is omniscient by his very nature. There's nothing that he has to gain in order to be omniscient. It's like saying, how does the number two become even? Well, if the property of being even is a necessary attribute of the number two, then it makes no sense to say that the number two exists before it is even and has to become even because it, it cannot exist as a number two without being even. So if it exists, it's going to have to be even. It does not gain the property of being even. With that said, kind of laying the foundation there. Right. So God knows what he knows by nature and and... What he's saying here actually refutes his own position, once again, right? The very idea that God does not need to gain knowledge from outside of himself directly refutes the free will position, which says that you are determining what God knows about you. I don't know how, how you guys can't see that. When he's sitting here saying, well, God's God and he knows it by nature, he knows it by nature of being creator. He knows it by nature of being author. He knows it by nature because he's the one who determined it. So what he's saying is true, but he's not realizing it refutes his own position. If God is a maximally great being and a necessary attribute that is essential to his nature is to be omniscient, then it makes no sense to ask or, or to claim or to push back by asking how it is that God would know the future tense propositions of what free creatures would do. Now, I, I reject this outright. I reject the claim that it makes no sense to ask how God knows. I get very annoyed by this. 
um, when, when the other side realizes that certain questions and the answers to those questions are direct refutations to their position, they're just going to try to come along and say, well, God's God, he can do it, and you shouldn't even be asking these questions in the first place. That is the last resort desperation mode right there. Desperation mode. When you don't have answers, when you don't have justifications for your claims, when the other side's the one who makes claims, justifies the claims, comes against your position with valid, logical arguments, and scripture in my case, um, and the best you've got at the end of the day is to say God's God, he can do it, and you shouldn't even be asking these questions. I mean, just take that into the idea of the other, uh, the other omni-attributes, okay? That would mean that it also makes no sense, right? If it makes no sense to ask how God knows, how God is omniscient, then it also makes no sense to ask how God is omnipresent. We should just, God's just omnipresent by nature, and we shouldn't even be asking the question. The problem is that the Bible forces us to ask the question and answer it. I just laid out the scriptural and logical justification of how and why God is omnipresent. He is omnipresent because he's created all things and he continues to uphold them. Since everything relies upon God's power for sustain for sustaining existence, he must be present with it all. So the Bible answers the question. So how can you sit there and say we don't ask these we shouldn't have to uh well we don't have the right to ask these questions, right? And 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 the same thing goes for God's omnipotence. Are we supposed to ask, well, what is, we're not even supposed to ask what it means or how God is all-powerful. He just, he is because he's God, right? But I just laid out the reasons why he's all-powerful. Everything that exists or continues to exist does so by his power in the first place. He's got power and control over it all. That is how God is, Hebrews 1.3 is the answer. And it's also the answer to God's omniscience. So he's trying to set up, he's trying to set up this, 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 this idea that he gets to make claims without justification. He gets to claim that God know, can know future free will choices, not have to justify it. He knows in the end he cannot justify it. And I just ask people to please not fall for this. This type of, um, well, God's just God, he could do it. Don't, don't be asking those questions. Because all he's saying is don't ask the questions that refute my position. You don't have a right to ask the questions, the very questions to which the answers refute my position. Because they can see it. I know they can see it, right? And, and so I, I, I just have to say, we most certainly can and should ask how and why God knows what he knows, or is omnipresent, or is omnipotent. We should be asking these questions, because we're talking about the very nature of God, right? The very idea of who and what God is, and his relationship to the things he's created. The omni-attributes are viewed in light of God's relationship to what he has created, and these are very important questions that need to be answered, and I reject the idea that we should not be asking them. Because if he is omniscient necessarily, then he does not gain knowledge by any kind of mediated way. In other words, it's not like um, it, it, if, we, if we were to apply this to a different attribute, like uh, you were talking about the discussion we had with the particular Baptist. Um, they kind of asked the question, well, how is it that God knows these things? But I said, well, if you ask the same question of how is it that God gains something, apply that to, omnis I mean, to omnipotence. It's like asking how is it that God is all powerful? But then to answer that question would be to assume there's some type of way he gains it. Actually, no. Um... I laid out how God is all-powerful. The omni-attributes of God are viewed in light of his relationship to creation. God is all-powerful all because He it is his power which creates all things, it is his power which sustains all things, all things that exist rely on his power. That's why he's all-powerful. It's not about gaining or losing it. And this is one of the major problems um, with a lot of the way that people view God's power. So when I start talking about omnipotence, and I say that God is must be exerting power over all things because it is the necessary relationship to a finite thing reliant upon God. 
people come along and say, no, 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 that's not what omnipotence means. Omnipotence doesn't mean that God is always exerting power over what he's created. Omnipotence means that God could exert power over things if he wants to, but God can somehow choose to not exert power, right? God can choose to let things be. God can choose to give you free will and let you do your own thing, be your own self-determined, self-powered, self-caused entity, right? This is what people usually say. But I want you to take, uh, I mentioned this in episode one, I want you to take that modification to what omnipotence, the definition of omnipotence, that God can choose or to be or not be exerting power over things and apply it to the other omni-attributes. If I were to come along and say that omnipresence doesn't mean that God must be omnipresent, it doesn't mean that he must be present with all things. What omnipresence means is that God can choose when or when not to, where or where not to be present and that God could choose to be present everywhere except in your bathroom because he's a nice guy who respects your privacy. Does that make any sense at all? I think it's pretty laughable, right? It's a violation of omnipresence in the first place. To say that God could limit his presence is a direct violation of the very attribute to begin with, right? And the, th the same thing would go for omniscience. If I were to take a Jehovah's Witness argument and say that God, omniscience doesn't actually mean that God knows all things. It just means he could know all things if he wanted to, but God could choose not to know certain things, which is self-refutory, because how, you know, how can you choose to know, not know something without knowing what you don't want to know? But back to the point, God could choose not to know certain things so that you can have free will. Well, that's laughable again. That's a violation of what it means to be omniscient. Omniscience means you know all things, and to say that you could choose not to know all things is a violation of what it means. It's not something that God chooses to be or not be. God does not get to choose to be or not be omnipresent. He does not get to choose, contrary to what a free will view would say, he does not get to choose to release his power and disconnect himself from things, right? And so he does not get to choose what to know and not know, right? As divine author, he knows everything he knows because he determined it. He doesn't get to choose what to know and not know. And ironically, if the free will position were true, if there were things out there that God could let go of, then he actually could blind himself to particular aspects of the future and not know um, certain things, because there would be other powers out there um, that could be self-existent apart from God. Um, but coming back to the idea of omnipotence, if you think it's absurd to say that God could limit his omnipresence, if you think it's absurd to say that God could limit his, his, his omniscience, why don't you then think it's absurd to say that God can choose to not exert power over certain things? all of a sudden that becomes okay, right? Because by definition, if you're going to limit God's power over something that exists and say that it can be its own power, God is not all-powerful, all by definition. And this goes back to the original point of what he says here. Uh, let's see if I can play it. Apply that to, omnis I mean, to omnipotence. It's like asking, how is it that God is all-powerful? But then to answer that question would be to assume there's some type of way he gains it. No, the answer to the question is to describe his relationship to what he's created. He's all-powerful because he has power over all things, because he created all things and it all relies upon his power. That's the definition. All-powerful does not, it's not like this power bar, this meter, that's, God's just always at 100%, right? It's not like God's a power and you're a power. It's not like deism's okay, or, or dualism's okay, if you just say that God's more powerful. And that's what happens a lot. A lot of Christians think that, well, I'm a self-sustained powered and powered thing, right? I'm a self-powered thing. But that's okay because God's just more powerful. And, and, and so, you know, they don't realize that they're committing the idea of dualism um, because they just think, well, if I come along and say that God's more powerful, then it somehow becomes okay. God is not more powerful than you in the sense of you're 1% and he's 100%, right? Or you're level one and he's level a billion. You are not a power in and of yourself. Any power that you have comes from God to begin with. He is the power behind all things, right? It's his power which, which 
gives existence to and continued existence to it all. His power underlies it all. His power is behind it all. You are not a power in and of yourself. So, again, he's saying it doesn't even make sense to ask how God is all-powerful. I think it absolutely does, and it exposes one of the false assumptions from the other side, which is often made, that God being all-powerful means he's just really, 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 really powerful, as if it's some sort of level or number. That's not how we view God's omnipotence. We view God's omnipotence in light of the fact that everything that comes to pass is by his power. Every power, quote-unquote, that we look out in the world is powered by God. It'd be like saying, well, how many sets does he do? How many push-ups does he do? What kind of creatine does he take? What type of protein uh, is he using in order to gain his omnipotence? But So, and this is another false assumption. When, when we're asking the question, how God is all-powerful, we're not asking necessarily how he gained it. We're just asking, what does it mean to be all-powerful by nature? And as I've said already, omnipotence or all, God being all-powerful is a reference to not his degree of power, but his extent of power. Okay? So... I'm not accusing him of saying God gains or loses power, but the way he's trying to explain it is that it's like this level of power. When we talk about God being all-powerful, like there's a 100% level, or there's this number you can assign to it, like I'm level one power, and then God's level a billion power, so he's just so much more powerful than me, right? But the whole point here is that you are not a power in and of yourself that God can be compared to. Any power that you have to begin with comes from God to begin with, right? He is the ultimate power behind all things in the universe, right? So this is a common false assumption, in my opinion, about what, we, what we're talking about when we consider God being all-powerful. What Calvinists mean when we say that is that anything that exists or continue to, continues to exist does so by God's power, and therefore he is all-powerful because he is exerting power over all things. It's, it's extent-wise, not power-wise. Power-wise, technically, even though I guess if you wanted to focus on just God by himself— you might talk about how unbelievably amazingly powerful he is and try to assign some sort of number to it, but it's a category error to try to compare his number or his level of power with something going on in creation. This false comparison stems up in people's minds because most people, like these two guys, have a false assumption that there are other self-powered things that exist that God can even be compared to to begin with. Okay, So I guess we just have slightly different views on what it means for God to be all-powerful, but I most certainly once again reject the idea that I am limiting God's power. It's because it's, in my view, it's not about degree, it's about extent. So ironically, once again, the free will view is the one who is actually limiting God's power. You might not be limiting his degree of power, but you also haven't talked about his extent of power. Because you know that your free will view most certainly does limit God's extent of power. Okay? As we talked about earlier with the omni-attributes, even if you try to come along and say, but God can choose to stop exerting power over me so that I can have free will... As a logical as a logical that that is, as I've already pointed out, you're still limiting God's extent of power. So how can you at the how can you in, in one in one hand limit God's extent of power, and then in the other hand say that He's all powerful, and then have the audacity to accuse the other side of actually limiting God's power? And I talked a little bit about this in episode one, trying to to demonstrate the the radical worldview change that you're going to have when you consider um, what I'm talking about here and this idea of God's power over creation and the fact that nothing in creation is a power in and of itself to begin with, right? I talked, uh, I didn't use this specific example, but I'm thinking up, you know, when we start asking questions like, oh, look at that big rock over there. Can God lift that up? And you say, well, of course he can. He's powerful enough. I mean, that rock weighs 100 pounds. God can lift 100 pounds. But what you're not realizing is that's a false comparison because the rock exists by his power, continues to exist by his power, and so does the, the, the what we would call the law of gravity, 
God is, is, is exerting power in both those things. So he's not just exerting power to, to create the rock, to keep it in existence. He's exerting power over the very things that, that, that function in the universe as well, including gravity. So it doesn't make any sense to say, can God lift that rock? Well, he's not going to come along and, and, and fight against or exert power over this natural law of gravity that he created, right? And that's the problem is a lot of people think that these natural laws that we observe going on around us are some things that God created that are self-sustained. So that later on, after he's created them, if he's going to come along and lift up a rock, he has to actually exert more power where otherwise he wasn't. And so we have this comparison of powers going on. And my entire point is that anything that happens in the universe is by God's power to begin with. So when we look at natural laws like gravity or chemistry or anything else, what we're observing is the ways that God regularly operates the universe. We're looking at the ways that God regularly exerts his power so that the universe can function the way that it functions. And whenever God does, for example, a miracle, like parting the Red Sea, it's not as though the Red Sea was doing its own thing and God comes along and exerts power, and since he's just so powerful, he can part the Red Sea. He was exerting power from start to finish. Even over the normal functioning of the water molecules of the Red Sea, his power was always there, always present, always working, and he just deviated from the way he regularly exercises that power with gravity and, and water molecules and whatnot to... He, he reg and, and, and so the miracle occurs because he's just deviating from the way he normally exerts power, but it's not God exerting power where he otherwise wasn't, okay? So bringing this back to the point when we're talking about God being all-powerful, God's not all-powerful because you can point at all these other powers in the universe and go, ah, he's so much more powerful than that. God is all-powerful because any power that we can point to in the universe comes from God's power to begin with. He is the source of all powers, of all existent things, um, and... That's the answer. So it's God is all-powerful not because of degree, but because of extent, when we're talking about creation at least. Of course, you could say God's all-powerful in the sense of he's God and he's as powerful as, as he can be by himself, but when you bring creation into the picture, what does it mean for God to be all-powerful? He's exerting power over all things. And for you to limit God's extent of power so that people can have free will is you placing the limitation on God, not me. And just as quickly as I possibly can here, I know exactly what is popping into most people's minds when I lay these things out and start talking about God being the power behind all powers that we observe. You're going to say, well, that what about evil then? I mean, let's take Satan, for example. Satan is pure evil, right? And so if you're going to say that Satan gets his power from God, aren't you just committing the greatest possible mind-bendingly insane heretical statement when you make that statement that, that Satan actually depends on the power of God when he's pure evil? Well, we covered this all in episode one, but to briefly summarize, this stems from the false assumption on 99% on of Christians' part of false assumption of what evil is to begin with. Evil is not a substance. It is not a thing that has ontological existence like matter or energy. Okay, Evil is a description of the actions of God's creatures disobeying his law. Sin and evil are interchangeable terms, and biblically speaking, sin is lawlessness. According to 1 John, sin is breaking the law of God. So sin is not a thing. Everything that God created is good in the sense of the reference point of good being what he planned, right? There's nothing inherently bad about what, what God created. Everything he created is good. Everything he sustains is good. And so there's not things in existence that God needs to go, ew, that's evil. I need to metaphysically let go of that, right? But this is what people, this is what you falsely assumed if the idea of the problem of evil would even spark in your mind as I'm laying this out. So God can be the metaphysical cause of all things, including Satan and his evil actions, because sin deals with laws, 
And the reason Satan is evil is because he is disobeying God, God's laws. Okay? And the only way that God would be sinning, we covered this also in episode one. It's really hard to try to summarize this so briefly, but the reason God's not sinning when he causes sin is because there's no law for God that says you can't cause sin. Since sin is the breaking of laws, God could only sin if he had laws. And since he's God, there's nobody that presides over him or created him to be able to give him laws in the first place. I know that's short and, and, and simple, and you probably still have a lot of questions. Please go listen to episode one for a fuller extent. I can't go into that here. We're just trying to stick with God's foreknowledge. But this idea of God's omnipotence and power, control over all things, how can God determine and control all things, even Satan who's, who's evil and, and not be evil? Those are the answers. We have the answers. I don't just say it. I mean... I justify it. If I were to just say, well, God, God's God, so he can do it, right? God's, God can control evil and not be evil, and it's a mystery, and God's God, he could do it. You don't have a right to ask these questions. Notice I don't do that. I justify my claims logically and scripturally. I give justifications. I don't just throw them out there. So I know that's long, and, and that's the best I can do in this short period of time. We need to get back to the topic at hand. I apologize. So if God is necessarily omniscient and knows all true propositions, then you cannot ask how it is he gains it. So, Again, I, I call baloney on that, and he wants to set it up from the start as if we have no right to come along and question, ask these sorts of questions, right? So he, and, and, and what's funny is he's going to build his entire Molinistic worldview upon his unjustified claim that God can know future free will choices. That's the unjustified claim. He'll never justify that God can know future free will choices. He will assume that God can, and then just say that we're wrong for even questioning it, right? What uh, what people like White is trying to say that if there are free creatures, then God cannot know the uh, free choices they'll make in the future, and then it becomes kind of like the open. That's correct. If free will existed, right? If free will existed, then God could not know the future free will choices. If free will existed. Theist where he's gaining this knowledge, but like I said, if God is necessarily omniscient, you cannot ask how he gains it. He knows it inherently. I can't ask how he would gain, have to gain it if free will were true. That's the entire point. If free will were true, God would have to gain that knowledge. He could not just know it within himself. Knowing it from within himself supports my position. He knows it because he's creator. He knows it within himself because he's the one who determined it. So this whole God's just God and he knows it thing actually supports my position, even though I, I don't just say that, right? I justify it. But it supports my view, not the free will view. Before anything ever happened, God knew what um, all the possibilities of what could happen. And then God, once he, uh, once he creates the world, he knows what will happen. But then there's this middle knowledge, as a Molinist I would hold to, that God also knows what would happen in a different set of circumstances. Right. So God, and this is very, very important, because Molinists dwell on this idea of counterfactuals. God knowing what could happen in different circumstances. God knowing possibilities and what would happen, so on and so forth. What you need to realize, guys, is if Hebrews 1-3 is true, if, if the underlying theme, I've been beating a dead horse over this entire episode, that the only things that exist, exist by God's power, and the only things that come to pass, come to pass by God's power, then yes, God could know what would happen in different circumstances, but he's only knowing that if he first considers that he would bring those circumstances about in the first place. So again, this goes back to, can things exist apart from God to begin with? Is it logically possible for something to be happening and existing apart from the power of God? Their assumption is yes. So if you start with the assumption that there can be things that are existing that God has nothing to do with, if that's a true thing, well, then God would 
and then you come along and say that God is going to know the future of those things that he has nothing to do with, um, and start talking about God knowing possibilities, well, I suppose you could go down that road, but you have to justify that there can be things that God has nothing to do with. If what I've been saying is true, if Hebrews 1.3 is true, there is nothing that comes to pass that God has nothing to do with, in terms of metaphysics and causation. So the idea of God knowing what would or could happen might be true, but it's just him knowing what he would or could have caused, right? It's not like he's, again, looking over at a creation that some other God made and going, oh man, I, I can see a whole lot of things that are about to happen over there in that creation I have nothing to do with. I hope, I hope the God that made that creation is aware of what's about to happen, right? That's not the reality that we have, though. God is foreknowing things about his creation. It is the only things that he can know about are the things that he created. There is nothing that exists that God does not have something to do with. So this whole idea of Molinistic counterfactuals, well, God knows what would or could happen. It, it's, it's, it's true, but it's not true in the way that you think it is. Because you think that God is knowing what could or could happen as a result of things that he has nothing to do with, whereas I'm saying God knows what could or could happen because he has absolutely everything to do with what could or could not happen. One more thing I'll say is that what's interesting, and I asked Dr. Craig this question on uh, Capturing Christianity once, it seems that on the Molinist conception of God, God is actually, quote, more omniscient than the Calvinist conception of God. And the reason being is that on Calvinism, God only knows the future because he causes it, so the only thing he can know is what he is able to cause. But and I've justified that. On the Molinist view, you could have that in God's items of knowledge, but you also have the items of knowledge of what libertarianly free creatures could or would do in a different set of circumstances. And you have not justified that that is a thing or can be a thing. So on Molinism, you have everything that the Calvinists, quote, God would know, but you also have the future contingent uh, 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 actions of free creatures. So technically speaking, on the Molinist conception of God, God has more items of knowledge than the Calvinist conception of God. So if you want to boil it down and say, well, which one of these gods is more sovereign? Um, now, I would agree. In Molinism, you have more items of knowledge. But the problem is that you have items of knowledge which are logically impossible. Congratulations. I, I, it's sad that you're proud of that, right? It's sad that you're proud that your view has God doing illogical things. But you're actually, this is why this is, this is a terrible argument, okay? And if you can't see it by now, after everything I've laid out, that all he's saying here, is since we, as Molinists, since we have this magical, made-up, unjustified category of God's knowledge, called middle knowledge, that you don't have, our God is more omniscient, right? Since we invented this illogical thing that we don't justify, right? We, we never give justification for its existence. We just claim that it does exist, this middle knowledge. Since we have middle knowledge, our God knows more than your God. I mean, what a, what a ridiculously bad argument. I'm not trying to be mean, but that's just, that's terrible right? That's like me saying, well, my God can choose not to be present in your bathroom, and therefore my God's bigger. Or, well, my God could uh, choose to create another God like himself, and if you say no, he can't, well, my God's bigger. I mean, just ridiculous stuff, right? You're claiming God can do something illogical and saying, therefore, your God's bigger. So the, these are not, it's not like there's levels of omniscience. We're, we're, not over, we're not arguing over whose view of God has God being more omniscient. What we're arguing over is what it means for God to be omniscient in the first place. What can be known, logically? How does God know what he knows? What can God know? Oh, but wait a minute, I forgot. We shouldn't be asking that question, right? How convenient. How convenient it, it is that when we actually arrive at the question and the answer that's going to refute your position, we shouldn't even be asking that question. 
maximal great being theology is kind of like a, a measuring stick that I use when I come to, uh, to to weigh two different types of attributes and see which one of these is greater because whichever is greater is the one that God would possess. Uh, so, for example, say you have... Whichever is greater is the one that God would possess. Is being able to do illogical things greater or is that would that be less? I would argue that would be less, right? Two beings, and they're both omniscient. But say being A is omniscient necessarily by his very nature, and being A taught being B everything he knows. So now you have two omniscient beings, but which one's greater, the one that knows everything necessarily or the one that was taught by the former? Well, obviously the first one who knows everything necessarily. Okay, and he's right, right? He's right that a being that knows all things necessarily would be greater than a being who was taught, <laughs> but... I just circle back again and ask you to explain and justify how your free will view, which literally has you determining your choices apart from God and separate from God, is not teaching God what he knows in the first place. I mean, here you're going to sit and say, well, a being that had to learn from something outside of himself would be less than a being that determined things from within himself. And I come along and say, amen, 100%. There's just one problem. Your view is the view which teaches that God learns things from outside himself. I know you don't admit to the word learning, but how do you escape the fact that your view has items of God's knowledge that are determined by things from outside of himself? How did God not, how did God not learn what you do? How did you not determine God's knowledge if free will is true? And again, their only answer is going to be God's God, and he knows it by nature, which is just a restatement of the fact that led to the question in the first place. It's not an answer to anything. So if we use that same measuring stick and say, well, which God is more omniscient and even sovereign in control of these things by knowing these things, I would have to say it would be the Molinist conception of God. Well, yeah, well put. And uh, well, well, well put. Right. So, you know, um, nothing against this guy. He seems very smart. Um, but at the end of the day, all that he said after all of this was God's God so he can do it. God's God, so he can know future free will choices. You have no right to ask how or why. And I'm sorry, but that's all he said. And and I have, I completely reject that. We do ask how or why, and we justify how or why with logic, with scripture. It's just step by step, crystal clear, all the way down the line. It also comes to the, the, the question begging fallacy, I think, that people like White sometimes employ with regard to the knowledge of God on our view being something he must have gained uh, from our perspective. And he did the same thing, I think, when he was debating, uh, um, who is his friend Brown, uh, Michael Brown. Uh, he, he keeps kind of pushing Michael Brown on this about how does God gain this knowledge? How, how does God have this knowledge? And he keeps almost like, it's, it's almost like he's insisting that the omniscience can't be inherent like you have. Well, that's right. He's insisting, as all Calvinists do, that there's only two ways to have knowledge. Either you determine it or you learn it. There's no third option. And calling it inherent um, just restates that God has it, and it doesn't answer how God has it. So, again, this is very, very poor argumentation. Argued that it has to be something that he has gained, almost like with omnipotence. It's almost like what you, you illustrated before, is that some people think that, you know, God might gain his power, like by doing a certain number of reps, you know, eating his creatine and doing, doing the things he does in order to gain power somehow. And as I've said clearly, God does not gain power. He has it by nature. And then I don't just say that. You're going to say, oh, well, you're just, you just accuse them. Yeah, it's a true statement. God has these things by nature. But how? And I just explained how. How is God omnipotent? Because everything that exists and continues to exist does so by his power. That's how he's all-powerful, right? He knows all things inherently because he's the one who planned it all. Um, and so what's funny is you're the one with a free will view 
which says that you determine God's knowledge with your free will. And so you're going to have to excuse me very much for asking how that does not mean God is gaining or learning. I know you don't admit that, but I, I'm going to press that question over and over, right? You want to say that God just knows it and he doesn't learn it, but by definition, you have God, contents of God's knowledge being determined from something outside of himself. How does that not mean he's uh, gaining it or learning it? So yes, I'm going to continue to ask that question, and I'm going to ask you to justify your claims. And if at the end of the day, I mean, you wouldn't consider it acceptable if you came against my position with all sorts of logical arguments, and at the end of the day, I just said, well, God's God, and you could do it, and don't ask his questions. That would be ridiculous, right? You would not accept that of me, but that's all they've done in this episode. In the same way, we're not saying that he gains knowledge somehow. We, we just believe that he's inherently has all knowledge. And how does that not support my view? That God knows what he knows because he's the creator and the determiner and the sustainer. That's the only way in which God inherently knows it all and doesn't learn. Um, and that is beyond our full comprehension. That's beyond fully what we can explain. I, I disagree. There are, there, there are simple conceptual things that we can understand about God. And again, it's just this fancy language that allows them to hold to logical views and, and criticize those who question it. And so we're, we're, it's not a question of if God's omniscient. I think we can affirm God is omniscient. Yep. It's, it's more of how is he omniscient. How is he omniscient? But I thought that we weren't supposed to ask that, right? So here's Leighton Flowers after all these things being said, and even his friends saying we shouldn't be asking it, finally admitting what I said earlier, it's not about if God knows all things, but how. He finally admits that. But your friend just sat there and said you shouldn't ask that question. And in, and in fact, you admitting it's not about if God knows all things, but how, completely jettisons all your objections that Calvinists are limiting God's power and limiting his omniscience and this and that. By when you come out and admit what I said earlier, that it's not about if, it's about how, you just invalidated everything that you just tried to lay out. And the Calvinist seems to assume that how he's omniscient is by determining everything. And... And we, no. we simply say he's omniscient by essence of his character, by essence of his nature as God. Now, this is incredible. Again, Calvinists just seem to assume that God knows it because he determined it. Can you seriously say that after listening to what I've said that I've just assumed it? I mean, this video, this episode would be 15 seconds long if that were true. I would just hit record and I would say, Guys, guess what? God knows everything because he determined it. And then, you know, that's the end of the story. Click. The episode's done. That would be assuming it. That's not assuming it. I have justified it step by step by step. I've used scripture, I've used logic, and I have shown that God can only know what he has determined. Okay? Because he has absolutely everything to do with everything that comes into existence or comes to pass. It is impossible for him to know things about things he has nothing to do with because there are not things he has nothing to do with to begin with. I've gone through it all. And to just say, well, Calvinists just assume that God has to know what he determines is 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 really funny. And it, again, flip this back to the other side. It's the other side that has just assumed things, right? And, and maybe this is due to the fact that Calvinists have not properly laid these things out. Maybe the Calvinists that he's listened to do that. Maybe they just present it without justification. And so he is taking that as an assumption, but... You know, after listening to what I've have to say on this, I think he's going to be hard pressed to say that I've just assumed that God must know, only know what He has determined, and therefore it's beyond full comprehension. We can't, you can't, nobody can explain how He becomes all powerful any more than we can explain how He becomes one who knows everything. And yeah, nobody's nobody can explain that because God doesn't become these things. It's the necessary relationship of to of God to what He's created, right? Again, 
if you understand the omni-attributes in light of God's relationship to what he's created in light of Hebrews 1.3, then it's not about him becoming omniscient or becoming all-powerful or becoming omnipresent. It's the necessary relationship of God to his creation. And to insist that we somehow explain that uh, begs the question, because it, it's, again, it's, a determining, it, it's, it's assuming a determinative answer is required. It assumes that God is gaining it somehow, like men would gain it. Act, no, actually, you know, the only side that has a view which logically leads to God gaining things, ironically, is your side, which says that your free will determines what God knows. And that's what's so ironic about the, the accusation, is that they are stepping into the same world as I think our open theist friends are, by assuming that God can't just have inherent knowledge of all things. And, and that might sound great on the fly, but, but there's nothing there that actually explains anything. God's God, so he knows it. Can be claimed by any position in this discussion. Anybody can just sit here and say, God's God, so he knows it, and then point at the other side and criticizing them for trying to provide logical basis for that claim. But once again, it's just a restatement of all the things that we agree on from the start. Okay, It's not actually answering anything that we disagree on. Yes, God knows all things. We're asking how. Uh, and and that be beyond full comprehension. Um, I, I wanted to inject some things, Eric, real quick, if I could. And this, again, beyond full comprehension, um, this is just code. This is a code word, code phrase for we get to believe whatever we want, claim whatever we want without justification, throw it into the mystery pool and cover it all up with it's just beyond our full comprehension. You know what I'm supposed to ask these questions and at the end of the day, how could you ever be proven wrong? I mean, seriously, guys, if if I can't come along with scripture and logic and not just justify my position, but argue against another position, then how could anybody on either side ever be proven wrong? Why, why don't we all just get to make our claims and then say God's God so he can do it? I, it's just really, really weak stuff. And, 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 and it's important to understand that there's, a, there's all the difference in the world um, between a mystery and a contradiction. A, a mystery is something you don't fully understand. Nevertheless, what you do understand about it is perfectly logically valid. So there's a lot of mysteries that you, you, can't, you might not fully understand something, but whatever minute percentage of, of it that you do understand is still logically valid. There's no contradiction. What a lot of Christians seem to think is that if they hold to something that is contradictory, that, well, if they just understood it more, if they just fully comprehended it, then that contradiction would vanish. No, it would not. Okay. If you know 1% about something and the 1% you know has a contradiction in it, the other 99% isn't going to magically make that contradiction go away when you come into knowing the rest of it that contradiction is still going to be there. You need to fix the 1% that you do know uh, it, in order for the contradiction to go away. And this is very important to understand. There's a difference between a mystery and a contradiction. And a lot of Christians like to take contradictory views and just cover it up with mystery and and pretend like it doesn't. It's, like, it's not, after all, a contradiction, which is, in my opinion, what these guys are trying to do. Good. Uh, some of the questions from the users or, and followers here and listeners. Um, this, this particular Facebook user says, I think omniscience is better defined as God knows all that can logically be known. Maybe that, uh, that might be an open theist making that, that argument because yeah. that's sometimes what you'll hear is that you can't logically know something that hasn't been determined yet. Well, I mean, that's, again, I don't know if that's exclusively open theist. I think I've made that, that same claim here. God can only know what can be known. And so the better definition of omniscience is that God knows all that can logically be known. Yep. And then he asked the question, is every truth necessarily a proposition? So I would agree that God knows all things that can logically be known, but I think that kind of pushes back the goalpost because then the question is, what is it that God can logically know? Right. Great question. But I thought you said we're not supposed to ask that, you know? So, and right now he, 
to give a context, he's uh, Leighton is reading questions from chat, the YouTube super chat, and this question that has been put forth is once again causing these these guys to realize it's not a question of does God know all things; it's a question of what can God know, logically speaking. And and uh, according to them, we're not supposed to ask that question, right? But they're forced to recognize it is in fact a valid question. Um, and I do think every truth is a proposition. Um, and propositions are going to be true or false. Now, without getting into non-propositional knowledge, which is an entirely different discussion, probably far deeper than we need to go to, but if there's something that's true or false, God's going to know it. And if God can logically know whether or not something's true or false... If God can logically know whether or not something's true or false... Well, then I, I don't see how, how God cannot know that if that proposition is true or false. Okay, right. So if God can logically know it, then he can know it. I'm glad you finally admitted that. The sun will and keep that in mind. The sun will rise tomorrow is a proposition. It is either true mm -hmm. or false. Mm -hmm. I think I know that proposition, so I have knowledge of the future. I have foreknowledge in that sense, and and I don't see how one could say God wouldn't know that. Now, you know, the open theist might be able to say, well, okay, something like that he could know. Um, but but even then, I mean, any kind of proposition is going to be true or false. I mean, the law of excluded middle is going to say it's going to be true or false. Um, and whether or not it's true or false, if God's omniscient, and if omniscience is defined as knowing all true propositions and and not believe in any false ones, is, then God is going to know whether or not that future tense proposition that has not yet happened yet, he's going to know whether or not it's true or false. I don't disagree with anything that he just said. And it's just a little bit, you know, it's it's like he's restating over and over and over that just God knows what can be known. Um, so no disagreements. Well said. Okay, um, Christopher Fisher, who's a, a friend... So I guess that was the end of that. Uh, no disagreements, but again, God can know what can be known, but he never actually justifies that God can know future free will choices. Again, that's an assumption on his part. It's an assumption without justification. And it, it's just funny that he recognizes the logical thing that I've put forth, that God can only know what can logically be known, but he does not justify that free will choices can logically be known. He just assumes it. Well said. Okay, um, Christopher Fisher, who's a, a friend of us on Facebook, and I've been on his program before. I, I, I think he would consider himself, excuse me while I wipe something off my uh, camera there. Um, I think he would affirm an openest, more of an openest or dynamic view of omniscience, um, if, I if I recall. But he says, do you affirm the classical definition of omniscience, that God's knowledge is ungenerated, neither within himself nor from outside himself? All right, so this gets interesting because we're, we sort of just covered this. There's only two options, right? Either God knows what he knows within himself by determining it, or he learns it from outside of himself. Um, so we're going to start talking about this interesting idea that, well, what's God's knowledge, quote-unquote, generated? And, I, you know, I think this is something that, that either side, you know, both sides have to face the interesting, um, thought-provoking idea that how can an eternal, unchanging God create in the first place? I mean, this is where words uh, don't really describe the true reality. I mean, when we start saying before creation existed, the word before sort of talks about, t you know, time, but time is also a part of creation. So, you know, does it make sense to say before creation existed, you know, what was God doing? What were things like, you know, these sorts of things. So, you know, I, I think that, again, we're talking about a logical discussion, even though God, <clears throat> God is eternal and unchanging. Um, there needs to be a logical order to what is going on, even before the universe, quote-unquote, before the universe exists. And so I don't really necessarily have a problem with the idea of God's knowledge being generated, as long as we're talking about him generating it himself, since before creation exists, he's the only thing that exists. 
Yeah, I, I would I would be curious to what what he means by ungenerated. Um, but basically, God is not. I guess I'll just have to repeat myself in that God is not um, gaining anything. Um, but going back to the, just that, I think if you look at it in that simple way, that if a proposition is true or false, God's going to know it. So whatever that proposition is, name any proposition, it's going to be true or false, and God's going to know that. Right. But, you know, the universe didn't always exist. And so, you know, again, we both have to face the, what I would actually call a legitimate mystery of how can you say that, you know, God always knew, um, yet and yet there's still a logical order to what he's knowing, right? I mean, both sides have, have to uh, sort of stop the discussion there, because when we go up too high, we hit God and you can't go any higher. And um, anyways... Okay, so it seems like maybe ungenerated would mean that it's not caused by him, maybe? In other words, is God's knowledge caused by him? Because, in other words, is God generating or, I guess, causing the knowledge that he has? Okay, legitimate question, thought-provoking question for everybody on both sides, but we have to be careful with this idea of generating, right? Once again, God, God is the author, he's the inventor, he is the one who plans creation out, and and again, both sides are have to face the idea of God's knowledge being determined. Okay, God's knowledge is determined either by Himself or by you. Now, we both have that. We both have God's knowledge being quote unquote generated in the logical sense of being determined. It's made up of things and by things, right? But at least Calvinism, at least my side, have it coming from God Himself. Right at the end of the day. <laughs> So at the end of the day, we're all going to throw our hands up and say, well, we don't really know. Is it generated, quote-unquote, in the logical sense of, of well, it, at one logical point it doesn't exist, and the next logical point it does exist? I don't really know. I think uh, I'm perfectly okay with talking that way, as long as we're talking about a logical order, not a temporal order. But, again, at least Calvinists have the idea that God's knowledge is determined by him, and not by something outside of him, which is something, you know, the, the free will position is in a far deeper hole when we start, start talking about this this idea, then then the Calvinists are. Uh, um, well, well, it, anything that's going to be true is going to be, in some sense, grounded in Him. Um, so it, it's not caused by Him, and maybe like if the Calvinist believes that. Of course, it's you know generated cause, whatever word you want to use. Of course, God's knowledge is caused by Him. I, I laid that out from the start, that when you start with God and only God, then any thoughts he has about his future actions, everything is related to his own actions. He's the creator, he's the sustainer. To say that God's knowledge is not caused by him, well, what's it caused by then? Is it caused by you? And I think a free will position, once again, would have to say, yes, you cause God's knowledge, you determine God's knowledge. And this is a far scarier, dangerous, you know, theological position to be having when we start talking about God's logical thoughts um, of course God's knowledge is caused by him. He's the one who is considering taking action. He is the one who is thinking about what he's going to do. Of course it's caused by him. It's not caused by you. I guess the Calvinists would have to, in some sense, believe that God's knowledge is caused by him in the sense that he can only yep. know what he causes. So when he causes it, he simultaneously causes himself to know it. Um, so he, Let me play that again. That went over my head. He simultaneously causes himself. So when he causes it, he simultaneously causes himself to know it. Um, so When he causes it... No, it's just simply God knows what he's going to cause. Uh, you know, I don't understand. I guess he's trying to use the simultaneous word in the sense of um, we're, we're talking about a logical order, not a temporal one. So simultaneous meaning not relating to a moment-by-moment -moment time. I would agree then. So maybe he's just trying to be fair to my position. I appreciate that. 
and also I would even going back to Molinism, you know, we also have to keep in mind that God not only knows what will happen, but what would happen in a different set of circumstances. So it's not just that God knows uh, 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 present tense propositions like today is uh, Tuesday. That's true or false. God knows it. But he also knows future tense propositions. Tomorrow, Eric will eat pizza. He knows if that's true or false. Right. So today's Tuesday. But is God is God knowing that by looking over at something he has nothing to do with? No, he knows that because he's the one who created all things and determined that Tuesday would be Tuesday and tomorrow would be Tuesday or whatever whatever example you want to give. This is going again back to counterfactuals, God knowing possibilities. I hope after everything I've laid out, you can see that God can only be knowing, right? Both I, Calvinists have no problem with counterfactuals. Calvinists have no problem with God foreknowing what could or could not be. But he's only knowing that if in the sense of what he could or could not have determined not what you could or could have determined. But he also knows counterfactual propositions, meaning like an if-then. If Eric, let's say, lived in a different city, then he would do X. God knows those things as well. So whatever you can put into a propositional uh, statement, God is going to know whether or not that is true or false. And both sides believe if-then X, that God knows that. Both sides believe that. But one side believes that God's the determiner of what he knows. The other side believes that God knows if-then X is based upon things that he has nothing to do with, things that he's just observing. Right? Things that are happening apart from his power. That's the difference when we start talking about counterfactuals. And uh, again, after everything I've laid out, the idea that something can be coming to pass that God has nothing to do with is logically impossible, and therefore the Molinistic view on counterfactuals is also a false view. God is not foreknowing, well, if this were to happen, that I had nothing to con no control over, then this would happen, which I also had no, you know, no control over. Everything is grounded in his own actions. Right? So... Both sides can take in counterfactuals into account. It's just the way in which we view them, which is different. Okay. Um, Eric Rogers, uh, he, he, he makes the comment, I, I can know what I'm going to cause. There's nothing particularly godlike there. In other words, he seems to be pointing out what I point out quite regularly. There's nothing really supernatural about knowing what I've determined is going to happen tomorrow. So if, if, I, if I foretell or prophesy as to what I'm going to cause tomorrow, there's nothing really godlike about that. It's, it's supernatural for me to be able to tell you what Eric is going to do tomorrow because I have no causal determinative qualities over Eric's choices and actions. See, and this is, you know, we covered this earlier. I don't understand why people feel the need to make things mystical and magical when it comes to God so that they can somehow feel like their viewpoint is bigger and better. It, it's a reoccurring theme on the free will side, right? Oh, well... You know, there's nothing magical about that. the fact that I could do something logically that God could also do, right? He says, I can know what I will cause. Well, I'm glad you recognize that. But, but then he says that there's nothing impressive there and that it would only be impressive if I know things I don't have a causal relationship to. But, but let, me, let me finish this out real quick. And for me to be able to foretell, prophesize to what Eric is going to choose tomorrow, Eric Rogers or, your, or you, Eric Hernandez, either one, that would be godlike in that I would be, I would be <laughs> prophesying about something I'm not causing. And so it does seem to it me... It would be godlike. No, that wouldn't be godlike at all. That would just be you making predictions based on observations of things around you that you have nothing to do with, which I covered earlier, right? We do this all the time. There's nothing godlike about it, right? There's nothing particularly godlike about, about looking out at other things you have nothing to do with and making, quote-unquote, uh, predictions, right? It, it's actually just the opposite, if you think about it. The very fact that you can look over at something that you had nothing to do with, once again, and foreknow or know things about things that you have nothing to do with, makes you not godlike. It precisely proves and establishes that you are not God because you didn't create those things. You aren't sustaining those things um, by your power. There are trillions of things that exist that you have nothing to do with. And you know what that proves? You're not God. That's what it proves. 
Because once again, God has everything to do with everything that is anything because he's the creator and sustainer of it all. The other ironic thing about about along these lines is that when when free will proponents start talking about predictions, right? I can predict future states of this and that. What's funny is if you press them on that issue, you'll notice that predictions are grounded in deterministic concepts. You can make predictions about the future state of things because you're not because your knowledge about the state of those things is accurate, right? The more accurate your knowledge of the state of things, the more accurate your predictions. So when you start talking about predicting the future, right? And how this is godlike, you're you're basically going down a road of admitting determinism is true because you're grounding your predictions in the things that come before and surround the things that you are quote unquote predicting or foreknowing. So I covered this extensively in episode one, how when people start talking about predictions, you're actually shooting yourself in the foot because once again, in order for you to be able to logically predict something, you need to be grounding, there's the grounding objection again, grounding those predictions in things that come before them. It's the only way predictions can be made logically. This, once again, has nothing to do with, well, God is just God and he's powerful enough and he can magically predict things. And, it, it, you know, it's just, once again, I... I I hope you can see it for yourself that if you need to last resort mode, you know, make yourself feel better because your view is of God is just bigger and better. And, and you're going to cover up what you know to be illogical claims, unjustifiable claims like free will and God for knowing free will choices. You're just going to cover all that up with this wonderful feeling of, oh, my God's bigger and better. I can't stop you from doing that. I just think it's very sad. And I think Eric Rogers is making the same point. It does seem to me that the, the Calvinistic perceptions undermine the the prophecy of Scripture because it ultimately is has God just foretelling what He's determined versus foretelling what. Yeah, prophecy. <laughs> and see how He tries to make the Calvinist view is just so dull. God's just predict prophesying what He's determined. Satan has determined foretelling what Judas has determined foretelling what other free creatures have determined, which seems to be a lot more godlike than what. A they lot more godlike. So think? let me get this straight: prophecy would be more important. If God were foretelling the things that you determined and you planned and you purposed and you gave meaning to, then if God were foretelling and 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 prophesying the things that he as the creator planned will happen and purposed will happen and gives meaning to and makes meaningful, you have your priorities backwards, dude. I'm sorry. But you have your priorities backwards if if you find it more important that God would be prophesying your plans and your determinations and your autonomous, meaningful purposes in this universe over against his. So I stand firm in, yes, the Calvinistic view is that God prophesying is, thus saith God, this is what I will do, this is my plans, my purposes, this is the meaning that I give things. And, and I reject the idea that this is somehow taking away from the idea of prophecy. You look at instances where, say, Christ was talking to Peter and says, you know, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Um, so he's, he's telling them, and then, you know, Peter's like, no, I'm not going to deny you. He says, look, you're going to do it. You're going to deny me. Now, this seems here an instance in which God knew something. Let's, let's maybe focus on the open theist here, where uh, God knew something prior to it happening. So he did have foreknowledge of the future. Right. So that is a, a good way to refute open theism. Now, uh, the Calvinists say that, yeah, it's because, uh, um, you know, God caused them to do it. But then when you read the scripture, um, even with, with Peter— I'm um, assuming uh, going to Judas. Let's look at Judas when he says, you know, whoever's going to dip the bread in the wine, he's going to betray me. And as soon as Judas took the bread, it said that Satan entered him. Well, if God causes all things, why would Satan need to do it? Why would Satan need to do anything? What, 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 why? I mean, cut out the middleman. Why would you need Satan to do 
anything if you're the one causing it, uh, um, because now you're causing Satan to cause him, which you're causing in the first place. So then even there. So, yeah. And and this is, you know, the idea of God causing all things. I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, because, again, I'm being stern, but it has nothing to do with me being mean or not liking these guys. I think they're perfectly fine guys that could have a lot of fun talking theology with. These two guys, being as studied as they are, should certainly know the answer to what they are getting at here. Okay? The question, it, it's, it's one of the, it's like Calvinism 101. Seriously. This is like basic level. This is when you first present Calvinism to somebody, they've never considered it in their entire life. The, the, the automatic reaction to this is, well, if God's determined everything and is causing everything, then why does he, why, why do we need to do anything? Or why does God, need, in this case, he asks, um, why does God need Satan, I think he said? God causes all things. Why would Satan need to do it? Why would Satan need to do anything? Why would what, Satan need to what, do it? Why, I mean, cut out the middleman. Why would you need Satan to do anything if you're the one causing it? Right. So, the first and foremost, God doesn't need anything or anyone, right? God could snap his fingers and just have done what he wants to get done in an instant, right? The question is, how does God want things done? Not can God get things done. What does he need to get things done? The question is, how does God want things done? And the Calvinistic answer is that God has chosen, didn't have to, but he has chosen to use various means to accomplish various ends. And the problem is that when people hear the statement that God determines all things, their attention instantly moves to specific things, and then they start drawing false assumptions about, about the things that come before or after those specific things that they are considering, and, and they assume that, well, if God determines that specific thing, then what comes before it must be meaningless, or what comes after it must be meaningless, but it's actually just the opposite. Since God has determined all things, each and every step along the way, every step along the way has meaning. God is the one who has connected it. He's the one who's the intricate web of causes and effects that makes up this universe. Every step along the way, God's the one who causes and makes those things meaningful. So each step along the way has a reason and a purpose for being the way that it is because everything is connected. Now, one of the examples I like to give to demonstrate this is, let's just say God wants a tree to be planted in a specific location. Something very simple. God wants a tree to be planted in a specific location. Well, why not just snap his fingers? Why not just teleport the tree into existence and call it a day? If God wants the tree to be there, right? Why, why bring the seed to that location by means of an animal or the wind? Does God need the wind? Does God need the animal? Of course not. Why bring the rain to water the ground where the seed has landed? Does God need the rain, right, to grow the seed? Of course not. He doesn't need it. He's chosen to do it that way. Why bring the sun to shine upon the seed in the ground and grow the seed? Does God need the sun to, 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 to get the tree to grow? No, of course he doesn't need it. It's the way he's chosen to do it, right? And then why wait so long for the tree to grow? I mean, God's God. Why not just snap his fingers and have it done? The answer is that's not the way he's chosen to have it done. He's chosen to use means to have it accomplished, right? And so every step along the way, You'll notice, in light of God determining all things, did God need the animal or the wind to bring the seed? No. Did he choose to, but he chose to do it that way. Did God need the rain to grow the seed? No, but he chose to do it that way. Did God need the sun to grow the seed? No, he chose to do it that way. So contrary to the knee-jerk reaction that, well, if God determines all things, then many things are meaningless. In actuality, since God determines all things, all things are meaningful. Ultimately speaking, God is the only one who can give meaning to anything since he's the creator, and he's the sustainer, 
He is the one who has plans and purposes in all of this. And in the famous words of Agent Smith in The Matrix, without purpose, we would not exist. Without purpose, nothing would exist or be occurring. It is all God's purpose, and I hope that people never forget that. You will also notice that this question is equally applicable to the free will side. First of all, it, you also believe that God could snap his fingers and have things done instantly, right? That's something we both believe God could do. So how do you answer the same question? right? And this shows the weakness of this objection, that, that, that how, how weak it really is in the first place, because you could ask that question of anything in life at any time, anywhere, and, and especially even the biblical examples of God doing things. Why didn't God just snap his fingers? If God wanted his people out of Egypt, for example, why not snap his fingers and teleport them out? Right? Save everybody the trouble. Cut out the middleman, as Eric Hernandez just said. Right? Cut out Pharaoh. Cut out Pharaoh's army. Cut out exerting power to bring about the plagues. Cut all that out. Just teleport the people out of Egypt. You're God. You can do it. Why do you need to do these things? Right? If God wants to save his people, why not just snap his fingers and have it done? Have it done. Um, it, it, you know, but the answer is obvious, right? The answer is obvious that God had purposes in doing the things he did the way he did them, and the fact that God had purposes in all those things is what gives them meaning, right? The Bible says, for example, that God will surely clothe us and feed us, but wait a minute, God never snapped his fingers and airdropped clothes down out of heaven or food down out of heaven for us. Last I checked, I go to work five days a week, I earn money, I buy my clothes, I buy my food, I prepare my food. You know, what did God have to do with any of that? The Calvinist answer is everything. God had everything to do with it, and that's why we are to be thankful for God in all things, even the bad things. But from a free will side, how do you answer God feeding or clothing you? Seems to me that free will is just thanking God for the opportunity of those things, but at the end of the day, it's you with your free will that needs to come along and make sure it all comes about. And this is the major difference between the idea that the free will is the view that actually teaches that God needs things. In my view, God didn't need to do it that way. He chose to. In your view... God needs things. He needs you to do this or that. Otherwise, he can't accomplish his purposes, right? He needs you to do things in particular ways so that he can get done what he wants to get done versus my side, which teaches that God didn't need any of it, but has chosen to do things in specific ways for specific purposes, and therefore everything has meaning. We see here that God does seem to know the future, uh, and there's lots of text in Scripture that shows that. We see counterfactual statements. Uh, look at Jonah and Nineveh, um, you know, that if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy the city. If my people pray, then I'll heal, heal their land. He's giving these counterfactuals where he's giving, and this is also phenomenological, where he's presenting to us, here are your options. If you do this, I'll do this. If you don't do this, I'll do this. He, of course, knows which decision, which choice we're going to take, but phenomenologically, he's still presenting it to us because he still knows that we as free agents are, have to make the choice ourselves. Um, now, at, by this point in the episode, you should have noticed all the false assumptions that were that were put into play there. Okay, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack. First of all, the idea of God foreknowing. Well, if someone does this, I will do that. It's once again a counterfactual that is seen differently by the two sides. The free will side has started with the false assumption that free will is true in the first place. They've assumed what they have yet to prove that man can have free will, freedom from God in the first place. And I've always already shown that Hebrews one three refutes this on the spot. How can you claim that you can make choices independent of God when, when you are 100% dependent upon God's sustaining power moment by moment by moment, right? It's a blatant contradiction to the verse. So they skip past actually justifying their claim that man can't have free will. They assume it from the start. So then when they read statements like, if someone does this, God will do that, 
They assume that God is foreknowing the future free will choices of those creatures. They are assuming that. None of it is proven. Now the Calvinist reads those same verses, if you do this, God will do that. But we understand those in light of our biblically based, biblically justified foundation that every moment of time that comes to pass is brought to pass by God's sustaining causative power. We start with a biblical foundation and then build everything on that. Free will starts with an unbiblical, undecided assumption and builds everything on that. So when we read as Calvinists, if you do this, I will do that, we understand that yes, God can know what would have happened differently, but not because free will is true. God can know what would have happened differently if he had determined things to be different. God has knowledge of all the ways that he could have determined things and brought things about. And this is where you'll say, well, wait a minute. If this, if this, if his knowledge of counterfactuals is nothing more than knowing how he himself could have acted differently and caused things differently, then why even bring it up to us? Why is he telling us? Surely the fact that he's telling us means that we have free will. And I'll play that assumption here again at the end. He still knows that we as free agents are, have to make the choice ourselves. Um, but logically, he's still presenting it to us because See? he still knows that we as free agents are, have to make the choice ourselves. So surely God is telling us if we do this, he'll do that because we have free will. Surely that's the only reason he would be telling us this. Again, in light of what I've laid out, Calvinists understand counterfactuals in the way that we understand them. These statements that God gives to us are for our benefit, not God's. God is telling us these things as, again, a means of interaction with us. He is telling us these things as a means to bring about our doing particular things, right? So by telling us, if you do this, I will do that, he is having a causative effect on our future because God telling us those things is a means to bring about what he has determined that we will do. So once again, means to the ends. The means are not meaningless. They are meaningful because God is the one who is using them to bring about his particular things. God is not telling us these things so that, that he's letting us know that we have some sort of autonomous power that, that he has to work around, or that we're somehow metaphysically free from him. If, if that were the point of God in these statements, it would contradict Hebrews 1, 3, and Acts 17. And the point of those statements, once again, is to interact with us. It is to have particular th thoughts spark in our minds, to cause us to take particular actions. It's just one more of the many ways and means by which God is working all things. It's all part of the picture. It's all part of the web and causes of causes and effects that make up reality, makes up the reality that God created and sustains. Other than that, like I said, going what we've been talking about already, either he's going to cause it, in which case, why even present it if he's going to cause it? Why even present it if he's going to cause it? Because the question is not, will he cause it? The question is, how will he cause it? And once again, God presenting it is one of the ways in which he will cause us to do things. Why hold people accountable if uh, um, all throughout Scripture you see that there, God is asking you, to, uh, commanding you to do something, but then he's commanding you to do something that he's going to not have you do. What also puzzles me... Right, and again, the commands. Why does God give commands if he's determined whether or not we will do them? Again, this simple idea of giving commands is one of the other means, causative means, by which God brings things about. I cover the idea of responsibility extens extensively, well, not extensively, but briefly in episode one. To summarize, you know, responsibility is part of creation. It's the way that, it's one of the ways that God has chosen to make things, right? The false assumption that people have that says responsibility can only exist if you're free from God when you make choices once again violates Hebrews 1.3, which says you're never free from God. There's not a single verse in the entire Bible that says that you're free from God. There's not a single verse that teaches it, and yet I can quote many verses that say the exact opposite, that you're never free from God, right? Not even for one moment of time. So 
this deserves its own video and episode in its own, the idea of responsibility and freedom. But if responsibility presupposes freedom from God, and the Bible makes it very clear that, that, that you're not free from God, how do you reconcile those, those things, right? So, so in the end, responsibility needs to be under, understood in that context. It needs to be understood that, they're, that, that you are being held responsible because of laws, commands that God is giving you. You're not being held responsible because ultimately, and there's that key word coming back into play, that ultimately you could or could not have done this or that, right? Even, even you, on a free will side, would have a very hard time explaining responsibility. If God, for example, knew that Adam would disobey him by placing the tree and giving him the command, God, Adam ultimately could not have done other than disobey God, because God knew what he would do by taking the action of putting the tree. So how can God then hold Adam responsible if Adam was only doing precisely what God knew he would do if, if God placed the tree there and gave the command? The exact same problem of responsibility is faced by your side. And again, this is not me just throwing it back on you. It seems like I'm doing that here because I don't have the time to get into it, but we'll cover that in future episodes, the idea of responsibility and God's determining all things. Is uh, um, and you did it on one of your programs one time, even how uh, I see oftentimes, and it seems to be typical more with Calvinists, is they like to call out false teachers, and, and sometimes I think that that's used too loosely. But why call out false teachers or correct a tweet that you put out if you think it's false? Because if God has decreed and determined everything, then that tweet or those false teachers cannot mislead anyone that God has not caused to be misled. And this is a typical objection based on the idea of fatalism. Fatalism is basically the idea that, well, if God has determined a particular end, then what's the point of human effort if that end is going to come about, quote-unquote, no matter what? But this idea ignores the basic fact that Calvinism is teaching that God is once again determining all things, not just some things, not just particular ends. So in the case of false teachers and people being misled, God has not just determined whether or not people will be misled. He has also determined why or how they come about being misled or not being misled. It's, once again, the means to the ends. So it's wrong for us to make presumptions about the future based on what is happening in the present. So take the idea of the false teachers, for example. He's talking about false teachers and people being misled. Start with the false teacher. Just because right now someone is a false teacher does not mean that they will always be a false teacher. We don't know whether or not God has determined they will change their views or not. So we proceed by living our lives based on not what we think God has determined, based on the present, but we live our lives based on the revealed commands of God, which says to combat false teachings. So rather than living our lives based upon our guessing what the future may or may not be, we live our lives understanding that if we, for example, obey the commands of God, he is using his commands and our obedience to those commands as means by which he brings about his particular end, in this case, whether or not someone is led or misled. Which brings us to the idea of the person being misled by false teachings. We should not be having a fatalistic idea put forth by the by Eric Hernandez here, which says that, well, if you're going to be misled by false teachers, there's nothing I can do about it, so I might as well not call out or combat false teaching. How do you know that your calling out or combating false teaching is not the means by which God will cause people to not be misled? You don't know, do you? You don't know the future, right? So we live our lives based on the revealed commands of God, resting and assured in the fact that God will use those means to accomplish his ends, rather than guessing what God may or may not cause. Which means you responding to a tweet or you correcting or calling out a false teacher isn't saving anyone from false doctrine. How do you know? You should see it by now, after what I just laid out. How do you know that your tweet is not saving someone from false doctrine? That is a ridiculous presumption on your part. And because God has already causally determine what that person is going to believe so it makes no sense to try it right god has already causally determined 
This is just self You don't realize how, how self-refuting you're being. God has causally determined whether or not they will be misled. But what's the cause? What's the causal causally chain? What's the causative chain there? Doesn't that include how and why they're misled or not misled? Right? So, I'll play that again. Because God has already causally determined what that person is going to believe, so it makes no sense to try and... Right. You don't know what God has caused them to believe, or why or how God causes them to believe. You're ignoring the way in which God determines things. You're admitting your view says God causally determined it, but you're, you're ignoring the causally determination. You're ignoring the causes that lead to the determined end that you're considering. So how, once again, how do you not know that your tweet is not a way that God will cause someone to avoid false teaching? And, and again, try not to be mean. This is like Calvinism 101. This is one of the most basic, weakest objections to Calvinism is, well, it's this fatalistic assumption that, well, if God's determined an end, then nothing else matters, and it doesn't matter what we do. It matters what you do because God gives it meaning. What you do matters because God makes it matter. He makes it part of the picture, just like the tree example. Every step along the way, the seed being brought, the rain coming, the sun growing, everything matters because God made it matter. And to sit there and say, well, if God has determined that a tree will be there, then none of those other things matter, is just completely ignoring the obvious view being put forth. That God is determining all of it, not just some of it. And change someone's mind to correct a tweet. If now, now you can say, and James White would probably say yes, but God also determines the means. Oh, here well, we go. Sure, but again, you doing something, God's determining you to do that. But even that, in and of itself, doesn't necessarily determine that someone's going to change their mind. Because it does necessarily determine it if God has determined that it will. That's the point. And he, he's like, just this gigantic fatalistic assumption. Well, God might have used determined the means, but even the means don't matter necessarily. No, they absolutely do matter necessarily, because God's the one who makes them necessarily determinative. Because God had already determined that. So God can determine means that are going to be meaningless and do nothing, and yet still determine you to do that, but... Ridiculous. You're the one attempting to make them meaningless. I'm the one saying they're meaningful. For what sake? Well, you could say, well, it's so I can be built as a Christian, my discipleship, but even that itself is also determined. I find it It's also determined as the result of what comes before it. Uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this surprised me because this is such a basic um, objection that why are guys on this level of the discussion, theologically and philosophically, making this type of ridiculous objection? That they're just going to, if God's determined something, then what leads up to that something is just meaningless, because I say so. No, it's meaningful because God says so. And it puzzling how, you know, they're going to say, well, there's nothing you can do. Um, God's going to cause you to do any and everything. God's going to cause you to be You're the one assuming there's nothing you can do. Be saved. But then they're also going to preach Sunday mornings. Hey, but you got to be a, quote, better Christian or better disciple of Christ. Well, how can I do that? Well, God has to cause you to do it. So and and, and this, this phrase, nothing you can do, covered this a little bit in, in episode one. If you're going to talk about the ultimate sense of God knowing, God taking action, creating people, knowing the results, in the ultimate sense... There is nothing you could do. Did, did God check with... Could you have done anything about existing? Was that up to you? No. So there's nothing you could have done. You're, you were going to exist because God determined that you would exist, and there's nothing you could do about that. Is that... That's, that's something both sides are stuck with, right? And I, I argued in episode one that, considering the eternal destinies of men, if God creates you knowing you're going to end up in hell, and he doesn't check with you first, then by creating you, he's determined that you'll end up in hell. Ultimately speaking, was it up to you? No, it wasn't up to you if you were created, when you were created, how you were created. It wasn't up to you 
ultimately any of it. So why tell me that? You know, what, yeah. what's the point of, of giving me these instructions if I can't myself fulfill them? God has to cause me to do it himself. Right. Again, what's the point of God giving you instructions? The point is that those instructions, again, we don't know the future. They may cause you to obey or disobey them. But either way, it is an aspect of reality that God creates, that God has a purpose in. Any interaction that he has with us, including giving us commands, including counterfactuals where he says, if you do this, I'll do that. That's all for our benefit. That is all part of the overall picture of what God uses to bring about what he's caused. Okay? He's, he's the cause of all of it, but there's a connection between it. It's not just snap your fingers, this is done. Snap your fingers, that's done. Snap your fingers, the next thing's done. He is using means to make a coherent reality function the way that it functions, right? And then this goes for anything in creation. You could look out at anything in creation. If God wants a tree to be grown, why not just snap his fingers? Because there's a way he wants it done. If God wants um, somebody not to starve to death, why not just drop food down out of heaven? Why use people in the sense of homeless shelters, giving people giving him money to, so that he can buy food, people bringing him food? Why do any of that? Does God need those people? Again, this goes back to this, this ridiculous idea that, number one, both sides are answering or need to answer this, this issue of what does God need and why this, why that? But the Calvinists are the only ones who make sense out of all of it. Calvinists are the only ones whose worldview gives meaning to all of it because God is in control of all of it. God is the one who gives purpose to all of it. God is the one who gives meaning to all of it. And you have your priorities backwards when you think that you need to have this thing called free will so that you can give meaning to things in creation. And if you haven't given things meaning, then God must not have meaning in them either. That's, that's a really bad priority backwards viewpoint when, well, if I didn't give something meaning with my free will, then there just must be no meaning at all. It just must not matter. Ridiculous. Everything matters because God makes it matter. Uh, thanks for the super chat. He asked a question. He says he knows because he causes it is merely the state of how things are. In other words, that's an assertion I guess the Calvinist would make. He knows it because he causes it is merely the state of how things are. That's the assertion of a Calvinist, obviously. I don't think the Calvinist limits God here, but just describes what is happening. In other words, this is what he chose to do. Um, that's not much of a question. It's more, I guess, just of a statement for Calvinism defending himself, I guess, right? No, that's an, that's an interesting way of putting it. I would have to think that through later that obviously this is probably a Calvinist writing a super chat in the in the YouTube chat. Um, it's not much of a question. It's more, I guess, this is what he chose to do. This is what he chose um, to do. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's, he's basically saying that, yeah, God knows what he knows because God knows what he chose, is, chose to do what he's going to do. It's not much of a question. It's more, I guess, just of a statement for Calvinism defending himself, I guess, right? Yeah, it, it sounds like he's kind of given an implicit defense of that, you know, Calvinists aren't, I understand that Calvinists are not intending to limit God by saying he knows it because he causes it, and we're not saying that either. We're saying... Not only are we not intending to, we're not, and I've demonstrated that. It would entail a limitation on God. No, it would not, and I've demonstrated that. If he can only know things that he causes. If he can only know things that can be known. If he could know things that he's not causing, logically, then, then I would be limiting God. But that's not the point. The point is he cannot logically know things he's not causing, because everything that comes to pass is caused by God, according to Hebrews 1, 3. So um, if this is what he chose to do, to only know what he causes, that... Where does this come from? God chose to only know what he causes? No. No. God is not choosing to only know what he causes. Logically speaking, he can only know what he causes. It's not a choice that he makes. So this is another weird sort of 
misrepresentation as if, once again, what is Eric Hernandez's implicit Molinistic false assumption that God can foreknow what he doesn't cause. That's the false assumption. So Calvinists must be saying that God chooses not to know those things that can be known. No, God does not choose to not know things that can be known. Those things cannot logically logically be known in the first place. That that even still wouldn't answer the question because let's suppose Calvinism is true. Okay. For the sake of argument, Calvinism is true, and God knows what he knows because he causes it, but that still doesn't negate the fact that God could also know things he doesn't cause if he could create libertarianly free creatures. Okay, first of all, the mere statement, you're right, the mere statement, God knows what he knows because he causes it, the mere statement does not negate the idea of God knowing things he didn't cause. But to suppose Calvinism is true, not just in that simple statement, but to suppose the position that I have laid forth in this episode is true, if you want to suppose, right? Let's suppose Calvinism is true. Let's suppose that what I said about God being the ultimate power and cause of everything that comes to pass is true. Then he's the cause of all things. And there can't be things that he didn't cause. Therefore, he can't know things he didn't cause because they don't exist and can't exist. Right? For the sake of argument, Calvinism is true. And God knows what he knows because he causes it. But that still doesn't negate the fact that God could also know things he doesn't cause if he could create libertarianly free creatures. If he could create them. There's your assumption again. But if Calvinism is true, he can't create them, can he? Because of the reasons that I, as a Calvinist, laid out. For example, I, I've often said that a Calvinist can also be a Molinist because Molinism at its core would entail that God has middle knowledge logically prior to his decree. Meaning logically prior to God decreeing anything, God has knowledge of everything that would happen in any given situation. So here's middle knowledge, and I addressed this a little bit earlier with the grounding objection, but we're finally getting a definition of what middle knowledge is. Let me play it again. So that God has middle knowledge logically prior to his decree, meaning logically prior to God decreeing anything, God has knowledge of everything that would happen in any given situation. Logically prior, again, it's a logical discussion, logically prior to God decreeing anything, which would include creating you, God somehow has knowledge of what you would do. Do you guys see the problem there? What on earth are you talking about? Uh, how can God foreknow anything about you if he doesn't foreknow that he's going to make you? And he just said, logically prior to God do, determining to do anything, which would include creating you. Logically prior to God decreeing anything, God has knowledge of everything that would happen in any given situation. And the grounding objection refutes that. Because the only things that come to pass are things that God has either created or, or continues to sustain. And so this idea that God can be foreknowing things he has nothing to do with is once again absurd. The implicit false assumption is reiterated over and over and over. Right? Therefore, you know, God knows all things, so he must be able to know free will choices. And this is the ultimate downfall of the Molinist position. Is that they assume free will. They assume that things can be happening in the universe apart from the causative power of God in the first place, and therefore, since God knows all things, he must know those things he has nothing to do with. But what if, what if, it can be demonstrated and proven that nothing can happen apart from the causative power of God, which I think I've done very clearly and repeatedly. If that can be demonstrated, then the Molinist concept of mi middle knowledge is completely annihilated as being logically impossible. Not that God's not powerful enough to have middle knowledge, Middle knowledge as a concept is logically impossible. And again, if you can't listen to this episode and the things that I have laid out, Hebrews 1.3, Acts 17, Colossians 1, proving 
that nothing can ever happen apart from the causative power of God, then then if you can't listen to this episode and see these these things laid out, I have failed in my efforts in this episode miserably. I've failed miserably, and that's just too bad. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not explaining it properly. I don't know. But if if you are not seeing these things yet, um, I have failed. But I think that I have made it very clear and very unavoidable that the idea, Hebrews 1.3, the grounding objection, middle knowledge cannot exist. Right? And just consider this statement. Logically, prior to God decreeing anything, God has knowledge of everything that would happen in any given situation. How can God know what's going to happen in, in any given situation if he has not first considered c creating and sustaining those situations? How can God foreknow what you're going to do? How can God foreknow the free will choices of creatures given certain circumstances if he doesn't first foreknow that he's going to create those people and create the circumstances? This is the logic behind mental knowledge. And let's suppose God looks at, uh, um, and I'm speaking anthropomorphically here, that God has, you know, the different possibilities and he can choose what he wants to create. Now, even the Calvinist can affirm this. He would just not affirm the uh, libertarian free creatures aspect. or He could, but in, for the sake of argument, let's say God says, well, I can cause Eric to do this or I can cause Eric to do that. That's still a counterfactual. I'm glad he recognizes once again that Calvinists do not deny counterfactuals. We have plenty of room for counterfactuals in our worldview, but he is properly recognizing that it's merely a difference in what those counterfactuals represent. In the free will worldview, counterfactuals represent what free will creatures determine to do, and in Calvinism, counterfactuals represent what God would determine to do. But let's suppose that God also knew the uh, <laughs> actions of what libertarian free creatures would do in a circumstance. Let's just suppose. You hear that? Let's just suppose. Yeah. Let's just assume it without proving it, is what you're doing once again. Guys, if you were, if you were hoping to hear a, a, a proof of middle knowledge or proof free will can exist or proof that God can know future free will choices, you're, you're not going to get it here. And here he just says, but let's suppose, right? Let's suppose that God also knew the uh, actions of what libertarian free creatures would do in a circumstance and says, you know what? I don't like any of those worlds that, that are possible, so I'm not going to create those. And instead, I'm going to create a world in which Calvinism is true, and I cause all things to happen, and thus my foreknowledge will be based on what I cause. So here's the idea of Molinistic possible worlds. God is considering possible worlds, right? And then he'll consider to make them. But if Hebrews 1.3 is true, God can only consider the future of what he himself will sustain. So how can you be considering, once again, possible worlds involving things that God has nothing to do with? It's a logical impossibility. Well, even if that is the case, it doesn't negate the fact that God still does know what would happen if he had created a world of free creatures. It does negate it. I've, I've negated it all the way down the line. So even Calvinism wouldn't uh, negate Molinism, and even if God only knows... If Calvinism is what I've laid out, it negates Molinism. He knows what he causes doesn't negate the fact that he could know, uh, uh, that he would know what would happen if he would have created a world with free creatures. Does that make sense? It, it, it doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. Calvinism most certainly negates Molinism. He's basing this entire Calvinist can be Molinists. This is basically his argument. Calvinists say that God only knows what he determined, but God could have created a world where he only knew what he determined. But he could also create a world where he knew what he determined and knew what we, f with free will, would do. So, Calvinism, Calvinism can be Molinistic. No, it can't. Because you're ignoring our basis, the logical basis upon which we justify our claim that God can only know what he causes. Okay? So, Calvinism most certainly negates Molinism. And I hate to be mean again, I'm a big meanie, but... 
Any Calvinist who would consider themselves a Molinist is absolutely clueless about these issues. They haven't thought them through. They certainly haven't read Hebrews 1.3 or Acts 17 or Colossians 1. They've read them in the sense of everybody knows what those verses say, but they have not considered them. Should rephrase my, my phrase there. But, you know, I'm sorry. You cannot be a Molinist and a Calvinist. It's impossible. And I've demonstrated thoroughly in this episode why. So he might me once again right that the simple claim that God can know what he will cause does not negate that God can know free will choices, but the statement itself does not negate that. And if that's all Calvinism was, was the simple claim, well, God can only know what God determines, but that's not what Calvinism is. Calvinism is not just this simple claim, right? That claim and that statement is based upon the view that God has metaphysical, constant metaphysical relationship with what he's created, and the whole irony here is, again, Calvinism is not just a simple claim, but the free will side is. Free will is nothing more than the claim that God can give you free will. Free will is nothing more than the claim that God can foreknow future free will choices. It is never proven. It is never justified. There is not a single verse of scripture that supports the foundational concept of free will. Okay? So Calvinism most certainly negates Molinism because of the three foundational verses I keep putting forth and... I encourage people to check out episode one again for even more on this topic. Um, and, and that's where I think the open theists are making some valid points in the side chat and other places, is to say that if we conclude the exact opposite of what this quote-unquote anthropomorphic language reveals about who God is and his character, then we have problems. For example, the famous passage that's often brought up in these discussions, Jeremiah 19.5, when they're burning their children to Melech, and he says, I did not command this, nor did I decree it. It did not even enter my mind. And then to conclude, as I think the Calvinistic structure does, that not only did he sovereignly and unchangeably decree the burning of the children to Melech, but he is the one who causally determined it by divine decree, um, yeah. which seems to be the exact opposite of what that verse is trying to tell us about the character of God. So, I'll try to be very quick with this. Jeremiah 19.5 is one of the most abused texts from the free will side, and it's so abused that people like Leighton Flowers will only quote from one version of the Bible which uses the word decree. Because Calvinists say that God decrees all things, so Jeremiah 19.5 in the English says that God didn't decree uh, the burning of children, so therefore look how easy it was to disprove Calvinism. Well, the reason that this is dishonest is because if you look at any other version, translation, you'll notice that the word decree is translated as spoke. God did not speak it. Do you know why it's translated that way? First and foremost, the word decree in English can mean to speak. It can be to mean to speak as a given command. The king gave a decree across the land, right? That is not the same context as when Calvinists talk about God decreeing in the sense of determining. So in English, decree can mean to speak, but it can also mean to determine. So it's very dishonest of you to quote one version of a verse where the only version is the ESV, which uses the word decree, and conflate that with the context of Calvinists saying that God determines things. The verse is not saying that God did not determine that these things take place, right? The verse is saying God did not speak it or command it. And you go look at the, uh, the Hebrew word for in the ESV decree, but every other version to speak, it's like 73 times in the Old Testament the word is used. And it always, 100% of the time, means to speak. That's what the word means. It means to speak. So were the, were the, were the translators of the ESV wrong for using the word decree? No, because technically decree can mean to speak. But we need to be honest enough to properly understand the context in which words are being used and not conflate them with other contexts like this overall idea that, that Calvinists say that God decreed all things. 
This is one of the reasons I use the word determine instead of decree so that people can't come along and, and pull this ridiculous stuff with Jeremiah 19.5. But I want to come back to the idea of, well, God didn't, God didn't determine. So instead of decree, let's use the word determine. Do you really believe that when God says, I didn't speak it or command it, that that means he didn't determine it to come to pass? First of all, that's so clearly what the verse is not teaching. So the verse is not teaching what you're saying it's teaching. But number two, how do you square Jeremiah 19.5 and your interpretation that it means God didn't determine that it come to pass with Hebrews 1.3? So Hebrews 1.3 that God says that God upholds the universe moment by moment by moment. So you have God choosing willingly to exert power in upholding both the people burning their children and the children being burned. God is choosing to exert power so that those terrible things can happen. So how can you sit there and say that God had nothing causal to do with that? If Hebrews 1.3 is true, can you answer that? I can answer that. It's the entire basis of my worldview, Hebrews 1.3. How do you square Jeremiah 19.5 and your false interpretation of it, your false assumptions about it, with Hebrews 1.3? Right? I demand an answer on this, and the reason I'm worked up about this verse is I hear it all the time, and nobody from my side ever properly addresses what's going on. How do you square Jeremiah 19.5 with Hebrews 1.3? Okay? He's not just creating and letting go of creation. He continues to sustain it. And if these three foundational verses were taken more seriously by people, both non-Calvinists and Calvinists alike, number one, there would be a lot less non-Calvinists. And number two, there would be a lot more Calvinists who were able to properly justify, defend, and attack the other side. Hebrews 1.3, Acts 17, Colossians 1. Commit them to memory, guys, no matter which side of the aisle you're on. And, and once again, Jeremiah 19.5. God upheld by his power the people burning their children. He upheld by his power the, the children being burned. The only way those things could have come to pass is if God chose to bring them to pass by his power. How do you square that with Hebrews 1.3? So I'd like to bring this particular episode finally to an end. I just want to summarize and contrast the two positions that you heard presented in this episode. And I want to do so because all of these points that we've gone through have been extremely, extremely important. When we start talking about this topic of God's foreknowledge and man making choices, can free will exist? All of these points are extremely important, and I've done a, a bit of a point-by-point -point response, and it can seem a little messy and construed, so I want to just summarize it and make it nice and neat right here at the end. So first of all, Calvinists claim that God can, cannot foreknow something that, it has that he has nothing to do with, because anything and everything that exists or comes to pass must be brought to pass by his sustaining power. To say that God can foreknow a future state of his universe without first considering the way in which he will exert his sustaining power over that future is completely illogical, and we use the three foundational verses to prove our claim. We also claim on this very same basis that free will cannot exist in the first place. You cannot be free from the God who created you and sustains you. It is logically impossible for you to say that you can be free from the very power upon which your existence depends. It is logically impossible to say that you can be a power in and of yourself or that you can be self-sustained, self-powered, self-determined, you're your own first mover, um, create your choices out of nothing, cause your own choices. These are properties of eternality and of God alone. These are not properties of a finite creation which depends on God. And this is also how we avoid the heresies of deism and dualism. Those are not Christian teachings. Those are things that people assume into the Bible or assume into their worldview. The Bible knows nothing of any form of deism and dualism. Hebrews 1.3 refutes them both outright. We talked about the grounding objection. Extremely important point, grounding objection. It is impossible for God to know anything about what he's going to create without first knowing the way in which he will create it, logically speaking. 
and more specifically going past the mere first act of creation on down the line to in the way in which creation unfolds, it is impossible for God to foreknow the next moment of creation that he himself must sustain without first foreknowing the way in which he will exercise his power in sustaining it. And once again, we use the three verses, such as Hebrews 1.3, to justify this claim. The grounding objection is the greatest logical refutation of any free will position that claims that God knows the future, right? Including, and especially the idea of Molinism and middle knowledge, which you have heard presented by Eric Hernandez. We talked about how saying that God can't do something is not limiting him or saying that he's not powerful enough because it's not a matter of being powerful enough. It's a matter of what is logically possible in the first place. It would only be limiting God to say that he can't foreknow future free will choices if, in fact, future free will choices could logically be known in the first place. Since they cannot logically be, logically be known, saying God can't know it is not limiting God. We talked about how as far as open theism goes and denying that God knows the future, this is also logically impossible if Hebrews 1.3 is true. Since God must exert power, exert the power necessary for the next moment of time to come to pass, it makes no logical sense to say that God does not know how he is going to exert his power in sustaining the next moment of time. God must know the future. He must know the way in which he's going to exert his own power over the next moment of time so that it can come to pass. So Hebrews 1.3 refutes the idea of open theism that God doesn't know the future, and it establishes everybody else's view that God does know the future. Therefore, open theism must commit fully, not just partially, but fully to the idea of deism or dualism. Open theism must teach that God can create self-sustained things, and that he can metaphysically let go of these things in contradiction to Hebrews 1.3 so that he can be standing by and spectating a universe that he created moment by moment by moment as it unfolds before his eyes apart from his sustaining power. Now, we talked about how even a general free will view held by these two uh, Leighton Flowers and Eric Hernandez, even a general free will view that has God knowing the future must also commit, maybe not fully, but at least partially to a semi-deistic, dualistic idea as well. And this is not a misrepresentation of the free will view. Don't let people just discard what I'm saying by saying, oh, you're just mislabeling us, or that's a misrepresentation. What are the concepts that are being talked about here? This is not a misrepresentation when the free will view openly claims, as these two gentlemen have repeatedly claimed in this episode, that there can be things occurring in this universe that God has nothing to do with. Things happening that God has nothing to do with, namely your free will choices, is a central aspect of the free will position, and I don't know how else to describe that position than semi-deistic dualism. So, so please, if you can provide me with a better term that is less offensive to you, provide me with one. I am just using the term to conceptually describe your position, which teaches that there are things that are happening that God has nothing to do with. Now, along these same lines, we proved with scripture and logic that it is, in fact, impossible for things to be occurring in this universe that God creates and sustains that he has nothing to do with. It is not a logical possibility to begin with, and therefore he cannot foreknow things he has nothing to do with because he cannot foreknow things about things that he that, that cannot exist. Right? We also showed that it is for these very reasons that you do not get to point at yourself and say, well, I can foreknow things or know things about things that I have nothing to do with. Therefore, if I can do it, so can God. No. In the same way that there are plenty of things that God can't do because he is God, there are plenty of things that you can do because you are not God. And foreknowing things or knowing things about things that you have nothing to do with proves and establishes that you're not God. That's all that proves. You're not the creator of those things. You're not the sustainer of those things. You are learning your knowledge about those things. God doesn't learn anything. He determines it all from within himself because he's the creator, the planner, the determiner. We've covered this all. We talked about the omni-attributes of God. Very important. Contrary to the claims of these two guys, um, as a Calvinist, I do not 
I not only do not have to sacrifice or diminish or give up one or more of God's attributes, but on the contrary, it is my position which gives logical and scriptural justification of God's omni-attributes in the first place. I don't just come along and say, as they said, well, God's God and he can do it, or God's God so he has it. My position justifies its claims, and in the case of God's omni-attributes, uses verses like Hebrews 1.3, says that God always upholds the universe by his power. If Hebrews 1.3 is always true, then God is omnipresent because he must be present with everything he creates and upholds. God is omnipotent or all-powerful because he is exerting power over everything that he creates and upholds. And he is omniscient because he knows everything, past, present, and future, about what he creates and upholds because he is the ultimate reason anything exists or continues to exist in the first place. So, I, I want to. Uh, that's my summary of what's going on here. And I just want you to notice: Did anything that they provide provided in this particular episode refute anything that I just laid out? Did they ever once provide a refutation or an objection to, exa- for example, the grounding objection? He mentioned it, and he said, "Well, they use it because of logic and this and that." But he never answered. He never explained it. He never answered the grounding objection. Right? There was no defense provided. Right? I had to come along and do that. They never once showed how the grounding objection is unscriptural or illogical or anything like that. They just completely ignored it. So contrast that with the position of what you heard from the other side. I know a lot of it sounded fancy and philosophical, but when it comes down to basic claims and assumptions and whether or not those things are justified and proven, at what point did these guys ever once prove that God can give you free will in the first place? At what point did these guys ever justify their claim that future free will choices can be known in the first place. They never did. Everything they put forth was claim without justification, and in fact had the audacity to criticize those of us who come along and question their claims by saying we shouldn't even be asking questions like that in the first place. God's God and he can do it, and you don't need to question it. Right? Everything that I put forth was a claim with justification. I challenge anyone to point out something that I said in this video, this episode, in support of justification of my claim that that was just an assumption. Okay, one single thing that I said that was just an assumption on my part that I did not provide scripture or logical justification for. Maybe I did. I'm not perfect. But if you let me know in the messages, the comments, direct message me, Twitter, whatever, video response, maybe, um, then hopefully I will be able to see that and then respond to it. But I think that I justified each and every one of my claims so that they became justified claims instead of unjustified assumptions. And so with all that said, um, This is the end of episode two, Consistent Calvinism Podcast. If you enjoyed it, um, like it, share it, uh, search YouTube for Consistent Calvinism Podcast, subscribe on YouTube. You can search your favorite podcasting app for Consistent Calvinism Podcast, subscribe there, and you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for updates and interactions there as well. Um, I really hope, once again, people don't take my sternness as, as, as negative as if I had a Am I attacking these guys, you know, personally? Of course not. I'm attacking the views. Um, I have no problem with these two guys. I think they're perfectly nice. And, you know, in, in everyday life, I'm perfectly perfectly nice as well. It's just when we start talking about these issues, sometimes I get a little worked up. And I admit that I am very stern when I make claims and, and make arguments and whatnot. So I just hope that people don't take that the wrong way. So with that said, um, the next few episodes of this podcast, we're just getting started, obviously, but... For, for quite a while, we're going to be focusing on, on these topics. Free will, God's control, God's pow- power over all things. Can free will exist? Can God know, for no future for free will choices? I plan to make quite a few responses to Leighton Flowers' um, episodes. He did a few episodes quite a while back, two or three episodes with um, another Molinist. 
uh, which I'd like to review as well. And that's probably what I'll be doing in the next few episodes, assuming that I don't get a response to this one. Like I said, I'm just starting out. I don't really expect these two guys to take the time to respond to who is to, to respond to a nobody, right? Because that's I'm just a nobody right now. Um, but I hope eventually, maybe someday, we can get enough people together to say, you know what, this guy has some things to offer and maybe demanding some responses to him as well. So once again, take it easy and see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.